Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show 146. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. Well, this is the last time for the Hugo nominations this week. I think it's sometime this week it closes, so we we are now just free-floating, waiting to see what happens in September. I think the actual Aussie cons round about the 2nd to the 6th of September. So, it's all fingers crossed and we'll wait and see. First off, did anybody spot the deliberate mistake last week? Now, I had two replies. I had one from Matt Sanborn-Smith and one from Vanamond over on the forums. Do anyone else spot it? No? Well, I'm certainly not going to tell you what it is. <laughs> Give you a little what's coming on today's show. But just before that, two teeny-weeny bits of news. Well, the first one's news. The second one's just me, what I like. Lulu has sent, a couple of days ago, sent an email saying when I first put out Starship Sofa's The Captain's Logs, my little book there, it wasn't really picked up by Lulu's kind of engine of their software and it didn't get distributed properly. So they very kindly sent out a code which is BeachRead305. Now this code gives you 15% off and doesn't actually hit on my side of the profits. So if you write in on, if you go to my website or if you just go into Lulu and write down Starship Sova, chase up Starship Sova, come to that book, type in the code BeachRead305, you get 15% discount. Now this lasts actually the, the 15th of August, which is a bit of a bargain really. So that's the first bit of news. Again, I'll mention this at the end of the show, which is actually a big show as well. Next bit of news, or not really news, it's just, did anyone see Inception? Please go and see that film. What a cracking film. Seen it twice now, and I suppose it's a bit like the the Bourne, <laughs> Bourne films and Matrix films, but just love that film, so please go and see that. What a cracking film that is. Give you a little heads up, what's coming in today's show? We've actually a little bit of flash fiction by Craig Delancey coming up. Fact article is Science News by J.J. Campanella. Then we have an interview with the writer of the main fiction, Langdon Jones. Next up is Langdon Jones' story to have and to hold. I'll tell you more about this actual particular story of Langdon Jones. It's a very special story. But we have, after the main fiction, we have a book promo by Amy H. Sturgis. Then we have our film talk, Rod Barnett's giving a little film talk. Then we have the closing remarks by my good self. So all in all, a fantastic show. This show will keep you going all week in science fiction goodness. Trust us. (laughs) 
So today's show is a little bit of a special show with, with regards to the main fiction. The main fiction is Langdon Jones to have and to hold. And people might be thinking, never, never heard of the guy, you know what I mean? What's so special about this? Langdon Jones was a writer that this story was picked up by Harlan Nelson to go in The Last Dangerous Visions. This anthology, this is the one that never got published. And it's got some of the amazing writers in there, had stories in. And like I say, for, for one reason or the other, Harlan Nelson has never put it out. And I've got a little interview with Langdon Jones a little bit later on in the show, you know, because this is, do you know I mean, you, you can't really, these stories are like gold dust. You know, some of the writers, unfortunately, have passed away, do you know? And I was actually on Wikipedia just trying to get some information about this book. Apparently there was three volumes going to be, you know, it was going to be 700,000 words. You know, it was just so, I, mean, I think Langdon Jones mentions in the interview that, 60,000 was just on Harlan just writing the, the introductions, you know. So this was going to be a massive book, a massive undertaking. And it's one of the things, it's went down in science fiction history as really, you know, probably one of the greatest books as never was. And I'm so chuffed a bit to have this story, you know. And what a story it is as well. And with such a great story, I wanted to have some amazing artwork. And please have a look at the artwork that accompanies this story. It's from Ben Wooten. Over there at benwooten.com. I will put links on the show and everything like that. But Ben is like one of these major artists now, been working for all sorts of companies, and what a stunning artist. I'll read out his bio. Ben was born in Essex, England in 1969, moving to New Zealand when he was three. His parents opted to follow the headstrong youth and has lived there ever since. Art has always had a strong passion combined with the love of fantasy, science fiction, the direction of film, design and illustration seemed illogical, but not so. As a young fellow, Ben had aspirations of being the next Jacques Cousteau or David Attenborough and accordingly gave up art as a subject when he was 15 to follow the sciences. A degree in zoology followed. It was here that he could see the downside of pursuing this career. More than likely it was going to lead to a lifetime of living in school and universities. So after eight or nine years in remission, a bad case of the arts flared up, leading to a course in visual design and a chance meeting that found him working at the Weta Workshops. Wow, how cool is that? On the first pass of King Kong in 1996. The rest... Ben says is history, Lord of the Rings, The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe and King Kong. All this has led him to where he's now hunched over a computer at home, drawing pictures for RPG books and the like. Life's odd, his childhood of role-playing games and drawing monsters really did work out, despite his mum's dim view of it. Go figure. And like I say, if you go over to Ben's site and check out some of his artwork, it is stunning. And as typical fashion, <laughs> yes, I've, I've hit Ben for some more work as well, coming up as well. So do look out for that and look out for this story, this picture. You know, it's just a picture, but it, it give it asking you so many questions. That's what I like about it. You know, there's so many, if you haven't listened to this story, you look at this picture and it just lets you mind wander what's happened, what's going on. And that's a, it's a great picture. Ben, thank you so much. So first up is a little bit of flash fiction. Comes from 
Craig Delancey. Craig's fiction has appeared in Analog, Cosmos, Nature and Physics and other places. Craig also writes plays and his plays have been read and performed in New York, Sydney and elsewhere. He pays the bills by teaching philosophy at a state university. And yes, he collects fossils, including trilobites. His website is craigdelancey.com. I'll put a link on the site to please go over there and check out Craig's work. It is narrated by Tom McGregor. When Tom McGregor isn't defending against computer hackers at his day job, he's just your normal sort of sci-fi consuming game enthusiast and other quality time with his beautiful wife kind of guy. Tom, thank you so much. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delight is very proud to present. Seven Songs of Trilobite Survival by Craig Delancey. One. It could have happened otherwise. And probably the seabed cracks open far below sponge forests that teeter on an ocean shelf. Hot water rises, shimmering. It stinks of rich sulfur and blue clots of bacteria. A trilobite follows the scent into stygnian depths and dies. Another follows, diving far less. And another. Fifty million years later, an asteroid splits the crust of the Earth. The air explodes. Mountains melt. The sea surface boils. In the curtain of waving tube worms that rings the scalding deep sea vent, trilobites sway in the tiny jolts of distant cataclysm, surviving. 2. The millionth descendant of abyssal trilobites turns in the saltwater shallows. The air is close, a soft openness that gapes above her like an abyss. It smells curious, like a hint of delicate foods. Her legs have grown accustomed to testing the emptiness. She lifts one by amorous arm from the brine. Water sheets from strange new gills in the elbow bend, sparkling in the sun. An apothosaur thunders past, slamming the water away in a single great wave. The trilobite is thrown to her back on the hot, dry stones of the shore. She claws at the sky in panic. A single, flinty toe finally gets purchased on the ground, and she pulls herself over. She shakes the diamond droplets from her black shell and breathes the naked air. 3. When the comet strikes, the plants burn, and the tasty dragonflies are stripped from the sky. The thunderous lizards fall everywhere, leaving great mountains of foul rot. There is nothing to eat. The streams turn black with mud and crushed stone. There is nothing to drink. Sulfuric rains scorch at the shell. There is no place to get cool. The trilobites descend into the miasmic tunnels of the mammals, those hairy beasts that have their shells buried in their slug-like flesh, as if they had been turned inside out. But the rodents are meat and moisture, and their cool dens tunnel beneath the end of history. 4. Trilobite cities rise in Africa beside the warm shallows of ancestral seas. Their buildings stretch out, long and flat, like coral reefs of the land. Deep beneath the longest stretch of stone, in dark halls with towering and tapered ceilings, a great queen sits in silent contentment over her cache of eggs, the store of generations. 
She listens in satisfaction to the reports of engineers who gather before her reeking of submission and pleasure. They have dug sewers, and the plagues have passed. They have raised walls, and the predators are turned out. They have forged weapons, and the rivals are vanquished. With one hard claw, the queen scratches distractedly at her pygidium, then spreads her legs wide in the hall, stretching out like the reach of her empire. 5. Ice creeps over the earth, hard, shell-cracking ice. One half of the Trilobites realize that God has curled up under her tail, wrapping herself in her numious exoskeleton of boundless thickness and hardness and extent. God has turned against the sinners who worship not the great daughter, nor submit to her many-segmented plan. God has abandoned her eggs to the snow. Everything must change, or the glaciers will bury the world. When the infidels do not listen, immersed in their stupidity like those maggoty mammals that never rose out of the mud, the holy trilobites choose the final judgment. New weapons have been forged that can crack the chitin of atoms. The world burns. 6. After generations, the war remnants gather in desperate clumps, scraping their naked and blackened shells together, dispossessed of history and the delicate customs of ages. Nothing ever chanced to crush our chitin and crack our eyes, the survivors sing. Nothing but us. And we who survive ourselves can survive now anything. Black carapaces creak as they entwine legs in despair and hope. We did not yield to chance or nature. We did not yield to ourselves, but yield to reason we must. They wait for eggs that might live. 7. Hexagonal Amatidia glitter with the radiance of nebulae. The trilobites swim again. In the deepest seas of space, their remade chitin daring nova winds as they sail past exploded stars and out beyond the disk of our galaxy. The gleam of ancient fusion shines in their crystal eyes. Each facet is a diamond-hard prism that tunnels from brightness down into wisdom. They sing in cosmic light. They sing in cosmic light a song of gratitude. They sing how lucky we are, for it could have happened otherwise. There you go, Craig. Thank you so much. Tom, you're a star. Thank you. Next up, we have Mr. J.J. Campanella with his Science News for July. Jim, sir. Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this July 2010 Science News Update. I am your host for this evening, Jim Campanella. Let's just get started. I have all sorts of crazy stuff to pass along to you tonight. I will start off with an update of a story from June. You may remember that Dr. Julio Marchini sent me a story that was originally reported on Boing Boing. The story involved three East Indian doctors who wrote a story in the December 2009 issue of the Journal of the Indian Medical Association. 
no one who wrote in Boing Boing about this had read the article because it was so hard to obtain, but they did report on the published abstract and title. The story by doctors Hussein Rizvi and Usmani was entitled High Frequency Ultrasound Torturer. The horrendously written abstract suggested that the good doctors were supporting the use of ultrasound torture because it was effective and undetectable, or it could be equally interpreted that they simply sucked at writing English and were condemning ultrasonic torture. The boing-boingers decided that the former was the case and went all out themselves condemning these poor schmucks. Since I had little basis to make a decision, I wrote the authors of the paper, and Dr. Shamim Rizvi was kind enough to email me back a copy of the paper. How hard is this paper to get? Well, Dr. Rizvi apparently could not even get an electronic copy of it himself. He did not send me a PDF-formatted file, as most people would normally do. He sent me digital photos of his own hard copy of the paper. I think that he went to a lot of trouble for me, and now to return the favor, let me do a proper review of this demonized article. The first half of the article is a history of ultrasound and its uses. The author spent quite a bit of time giving background on all the clinical good that ultrasound has been put to, including many technical details and explanations of methods of ultrasound visualization and use of ultrasound to do things like break up kidney stones. The second part of the article is a bit more chilling, entitled Preferential Areas of Exposure in the Body by the Torturer. Well, the authors then go into detail on all the best parts of the brain and body to treat with ultrasonic waves to, quote, ablate violence and aggression in the treated individual. They even explain how you need to trepan, that is, open up the skull, to get optimal exposure of the sound waves into the brain tissue. Yes, this is creepy and disturbing. But up until this point, I, I saw no clear evidence that they supported this type of torture. As with most things in life, truth lies neither here nor there, but in some weird, indiscriminate, twilight zonish place in between. The last part of the article seems to be mostly concerned, I swear, with a, la this is a, quote, a lack of safety monitoring of torturers. Apparently, the authors are indeed worried about ultrasonic torture as a new and upcoming way of inflicting pain, but they feel that there should be governmental agencies watching over torturers so they do not get out of hand and harm their victims. Again, in reading this, I feel like I entered some weird parallel universe. Now, now I'm going to conclude with this. I believe the authors are sincerely against sonic torture and have written this paper as a warning. But their article is so badly written out and convoluted that it is difficult at times to clearly get at their intentions. I can only go by the last line of the first paragraph of the paper, which states, quote, This paper is not written to discourage the use of ultrasound in diagnostic and therapeutic uses. On the contrary, it tends to awaken awareness on the possible misuse in torture. Unquote. I guess I couldn't have said it better myself. Now an update on a story I discussed months ago on the possibility of life on Saturn's moon Titan. There are two new studies that examine evidence for life based on missing chemicals on Titan. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, the first study is in the journal Icarus. It's a paper by astrobiologist 
Dr. Daryl Strobel of Johns Hopkins University. And it may have implications for the possibility of life on Titan, which is believed to harbor methane lakes. Now, Strobel created a computer simulation indicating that hydrogen molecules flow downward from Titan's atmosphere but are somehow missing from the surface. Hydrogen molecules are generated in Titan's atmosphere when ultraviolet light breaks down methane and acetylene molecules. And then it should just go down to the surface, but it's not there. Using data from two spectrometers on the Cassini spacecraft, Strobel found that hydrogen molecules flow out of the atmosphere at a rate of about 10,000 trillion trillion a second, but the analysis found no corresponding buildup at the surface of the moon. Strobel says it's unlikely that hydrogen is sequestered in a cave or beneath the surface, and because Titan is so cold, a catalyst would have to be required to convert the hydrogen molecules and acetylene back into methane. So what does that mean? Well, Strobel says, quote, These results are suggestive of exotic life, but by no means a clincher. What we want to do next is actually measure something that may prove or disprove the abiotic and biological hypotheses, like the existence of a chemical catalyst, unquote. Now, if that were not enough, a second paper came out recently with similar results in the Journal of Geophysical Research. Dr. Roger Clark of the U.S. Geological Survey reports, using another Cassini spectrometer, that he finds a lack of acetylene there. Both acetylene and benzene are expected to be produced when sunlight strikes the methane gas in Titan's atmosphere, and then those molecules should fall to the surface. Clark and his colleagues found loads of benzene on the surface of the moon, but no acetylene, even though acetylene is predicted to be the more abundant of the two compounds in the Titan atmosphere. Now, if it was just Strobel's results by themselves, we could discount his findings as simply a chemical process going on. Taken alone, the lack of acetylene, even with his previously found deficit of the compound ethane, wouldn't make much of a story. Those low abundances could even have been due to a smaller-than-predicted production of the compounds in the atmosphere of Titan. But low acetylene and low ethane, plus low levels of hydrogen, suggested by Clark's paper, could equal life. Several researchers have even suggested that hydrocarbons on Titan could be the basis of life, playing the same role there that liquid water does on Earth. Just as organisms on Earth combine molecular oxygen with organic compounds to get energy, organisms on Titan might react molecular hydrogen with organic materials such as acetylene. When combined with hydrogen, acetylene is a potentially huge source of metabolic energy. The results of this metabolism would be the production of methane, of which Titan has tons apparently. That might also explain why Titan has tons of methane. Methane is usually pretty unstable and breaks down easily in sunlight, so you wouldn't expect large amounts of methane on Titan, and yet there it is. One explanation is that organic life is continually replenishing it. Our next story involves snakes in an MRI machine, which doesn't sound quite as good as snakes on a plane, does it? Dr. Yadin Dudai of the Weissman Institute in Israel published a paper in the June issue of the journal Neuron, which examines the roots of human courage and how humans overcome their fears. Of course, this involves something that even Samuel Jackson would freak out over. Dudai designed a conveyor belt that carried a large, writhing snake strapped to the top of a box with a single piece of Velcro. 
Sixteen volunteers were then confined inside an MRI scanner with the snake behind their heads and were repeatedly given the choice to push a button that brought the snake 11 centimeters closer or move it 11 centimeters farther away from them. After each choice, Amir showed the person the snake's position behind them. The four-foot-long snake used was not poisonous and could not constrict or hurt the subjects, but for anybody with even a mild snake phobia, it would scare the blazes out of them. As the subjects chose to advance the snake, that was interpreted as a move that was courageous. Dudai and his team scanned their brain activity at that point. Dudai's team then compared which brain regions were active to the parts that lit up when a subject succumbed to their fear and moved the snake away. This comparison turned up a region in the front of the brain called the subgenual anterior cingulate cortex. When the subgenual anterior cingulate cortex was active in the subject's brains, the researchers noticed that bodily indicators of fear, such as increased sweating, were reduced. The paper hypothesizes that this brain region is crucial for directing the body to ignore fear. Why is this important? Well, stimulating or activating this region might one day help people with phobias to overcome their fears. Understanding how the brain chooses to overcome fearful impulses may help scientists treat people with phobias or panic disorders. Tony, are you listening? There's hope yet out there for you, my friend. If we can't erase bad old memories quite yet, then maybe neuroscientists can help people to simply be less anxious about them. Ah, speaking of fear, you horror movie fans out there might find this next story interesting. What makes for a good, believable scream in a movie? Well, according to Dr. Daniel Bloomstein of the University of California in Los Angeles, it has to do with how chaotic the scream actually is. His findings were published last month in the journal Biology Letters. According to Bloomstein, filmmakers use chaotic, unpredictable sounds to evoke particular emotions. And he assessed screams and other outbursts from more than 100 movies to find this out. He acoustically analyzed 30-second cuts from more than 100 movies representing a broad array of genres. The movies included such titles as Aliens, Goldfinger, Annie Hall, The Green Mile, Slumdog Millionaire, Titanic, Carrie, The Shining, and Black Hawk Down. Not unexpectedly, the horror films had a lot of harsh and atonal screams. Dramatic films, on the other hand, had soundtracks with fewer screams, but a lot of abrupt changes in frequency. And adventure films, it turns out, had a surprising number of harsh male screams. What was the point? Well, Bloomstein typically studies screams in marmots, not starlets. He's not necessarily interested in the movies themselves in his study although his results are kind of cool to cinephiles like me. What he's really interested in is a better understanding of the ways of communicating that are common among all animals, including humans. Bloomstein says that potentially there are universal rules of arousal and ways to communicate fear. I absolutely believe there are universal rules of communication there. When I was working on my master's degree, I heard terrified rabbits screaming, while taking blood samples for some immunological research. Rabbit screams are chaotic and weirdly sound like small children or babies screaming. If you want to be completely unnerved and freaked out, there are a few sounds that I know of that are more blood-curdling. 
The last two stories of the evening have to do with emotions and lying. Now, I'm not a big watcher of TV shows. There are a couple that I watch without fail, one of those being Lost before it ended a couple of months ago, and the other being the amazing comedy Big Bang Theory, because it's populated by kindred spirits who are much like myself and my um, geekish friends. One of the shows that I have recently found fascinating is a drama which borders on the SF sometimes, since it delves into psychology that is pretty cutting edge. The show is called Lie to Me, and Tim Roth plays the cocky Dr. Cal Lightman, who is a deception expert. He is basically a human lie detector who uses his years of psychological study and training into the human voice, language, expressions, and micro-expressions to tell when people tell the truth. Apparently, the show does have a psychologist consultant and is based mostly in fact, which I find all the more fascinating. What teacher, myself included, wouldn't want to look a student in the eye who lies that he missed his exam because his grandmother died for the fourth time and be able to instantly call him on it? It would be devastating. Of course, with great power comes great responsibility. One of the plot lines of the show is that Dr. Lightman's marriage was destroyed because his superpower allowed him to instantly tell whether his life was lying or not. Truth is not always good for a marriage. Oh yeah, and Lightman is also a consummate liar himself and con man because he understands exactly what facial expressions and language need to be used for lies to be interpreted as truth by others. Where am I going with this? What are the purpose of facial expressions? One might immediately respond that they evolved so that humans could more easily convey emotions to each other. Without those universal expressions, we would have long ago killed each other all off because of complete mistrust. If you have no idea whether your colleague is sad, happy, or exhilarated, then you will be slow to trust them. Even when we are deceived by others, we generally trust in our abilities to read facial expressions. Well, there's strong evidence that besides just reflecting our internal emotions to others, facial expressions may have another function entirely. Expressions on our faces appear to have a feedback mechanism. In other words, if you smile, you will feel happier. There is truth to the old wives' tale that suggests that if you feel sad, you will feel better by smiling. If you are sad and frown, you will feel even worse. In an upcoming issue of the Journal of Psychological Science, David Havis of the University of Wisconsin-Madison examined the effects of Botox on facial expressions and emotional feedback. He found support for the hypothesis that facial expressions activate links between brain regions responsible for emotions and language. Two weeks after their first Botox injection, 40 women took an average of about one-third of a second longer to read sentences describing angry and sad situations than they did immediately before the procedure. Havis hypothesizes that Botox-induced paralysis of the frown muscle, which runs across the forehead just above the eyes, allowing it to pull the eyebrows inward and down, may gradually weaken brain circuits that coordinate negative emotions. On the other side of things, banishing frown lines with Botox can have serious social repercussions. Previous studies indicate that mimicry of facial expressions critically aids in the understanding of others' emotions and intentions and behaviors. 
So not only will other people not be able to tell the emotions of a Botox patient, but the Botox patients will have a harder time understanding the emotions of others. During the process of conversation or communication, we often mimic the facial expressions of other people. If you're talking to someone who's sad, you will likely have a sad expression on your face. Well, if you can't mirror that expression, then you're less likely to be able to understand the emotions of others. And worse, Havis suggests that, quote, real-life conversations involve exquisitely timed banter, and seemingly small disturbances in evaluating emotional statements may foster serious misunderstandings, unquote. So basically, if you're talking to someone and they don't see you mirroring their emotions, then they may wonder what exactly is going on in your head. On to the last story. This concerns lying antelopes. You may remember a few months ago I reported on some young monkeys who used deception to get food from older monkeys. I reported that as being one of the few deliberate deceptive practices found in the animal kingdom outside of humans. Well, here's another example. Dr. Jakob Bro Jorgensen from the University of Liverpool reports on antelope deception in the July issue of The American Naturalist. Here is the basic result. Male topi antelopes will resort to deception to keep a potential mate around, snorting as if there's a lion nearby just when it seems she might wander off. The discovery is the first report of outright mate deception in an animal other than Homo sapiens. The paper says, quote, Some mother birds will feign a broken wing to lure a predator away from their nest, and there are reports in animals such as monkeys and squirrels of males deceiving other males in the heat of competition. But the male antelope behavior is the clearest example of tactical deception between mates in animals other than humans. Unquote. The devious behavior was observed in the topi antelopes on the savannas of the Masai Mara National Reserve in Kenya during the spring mating season. During that season, males stake out territories rich in grass. And the female antelopes are sexually receptive for only one day and spend that day visiting males serially, munching grass and, well, mating. Bro Jorgensen noticed that when a female would start to wander away from a particular male's territory, the male would look in the direction she was headed, prick up his ears, and snort loudly. The same snort that the animals used when they noticed a lion, a leopard, or some other approaching predator. Bro Jorgensen said, quote, It was very funny. It made me laugh. It was such an obvious lie. Clearly there was no lion. Unquote. To test whether the males were lying outright, Bro Jorgensen first observed males when they were making honest snorts. Male antelopes snorted when the human was approaching, the researchers found, even if an antelope was alone. This suggests that rather than being a warning to fellow antelopes, a true snort is actually directed at the predator itself. That kind of makes sense. If they have enough of a head start, uh, topi antelopes can easily outrun a lion or even a cheetah. By snorting at a cat who thinks it's hidden in the high grass, an antelope says, I see you there, give it up. The researchers also recorded true and false snorts and played them back to female antelopes to see if the ladies could tell the difference. Judging by their reactions, the females couldn't tell a true snort from a false snort. 
Neither could an audio analysis by the researchers, who detected absolutely no acoustical differences between the true and the false snorts. The clincher that the males were lying to just score came from observations of the animals in action. A male antelope secured two to three more chances at meeting with a restless female if he pulled that false snort trick, according to the paper. When receptive females were to male's territory, the males emitted as many as nine false snorts for every honest one. But even antelopes can't cry wolf too many times. Quote, If a male keeps making false alarms and there's no predator, Bro Jorgensen says, she simply walks away in the end. It makes me feel a bit better that female antelopes are not quite as oblivious as I first thought. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care. If you have an MRI coming up soon, make sure you check it for large snakes before crawling in. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go. Hardest working man on the Starship sofa, that fella. <laughs> Jim, you're a star. Thank you so much. Next up, we have a little interview, just about 10 minutes long, with Langdon Jones, the author of this fantastic story, To Have and To Hold. So I'm joined by the writer of To Have and To Hold, Langdon Jones. Langdon, nice of you to come on board Starship Sofa. Hello there, Tony. Nice to be here. Yeah, thank you very much, sir. Now, Langdon, this story, it's came from that, you know, that the last dangerous visions, or it was penned to go in there. And can you just give us a little, without giving too much away about the, the ending, because we're going to play that now, can you just give us a little bit of description about the story? Um, well, I suppose it's um, slightly different from the, the, the from what I'd been producing up until then. It's uh, it's it's basically a, about a story. It, it actually arose when I was um, living in Wales with my wife, and we had an idle conversation one night, as you do, about brain transplants. And um, I sort of speculated about about the sort of essence of the person and how much um, of them would remain. Um, and that that sort of gave rise to the story. And uh, in actual fact, it was it was written within a very short time, sent off to Harlem, and and accepted within about three weeks of it being written. So it was uh, a very very quick quick thing altogether. And it stayed with Harlem for many years now. Many many years, <laughs> yes, <laughs> many decades, in fact, yes. <laughs> do, you, do you ever think you'll ever come out and publish that, The Last Dangerous Visions? Well, we used to, we used to get regular updates from him, you know, at, um, at sort of a, annual updates. And uh, he, he would say, look, guys, it's, it's almost ready, you know. And uh, then the next time he'd say, oh, I've had to write an extra sort of 300,000 words and it'll be, it'll be ready in a, in a fairly short time. And it went on like this. <laughs> and it took quite a long time for me to um, to realise that, in fact, it wouldn't be coming out at all. Well, it actually it says on Wikipedia that it was there was going to be actually. Am I right in thinking this? Three actual volumes of the last dangerous visions, and it was something like <laughs> seven hundred thousand words. I know, I know, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. Without the hyperbole, I, I remember him saying that he had to write something like sixty thousand words of introduction. <laughs> Great story. <laughs> it amounted to 60,000 words. So are, are you convinced then it's, it's never going to see the light of day, the last dangerous visions? Well, 
right. Uh, not in not in the form that he intended it. Um, I think that uh, probably a lot of the uh, a lot of what was supposed to be published has probably been published elsewhere. Um, there, there might be some sort of tattered remnant of it, which uh, <laughs> which will come out in some some sort of form. It is a historical curiosity, but I think that's about uh, all it will be. So, Langdon, are you still dabbling in writing all these years, or have you changed over hobbies, or...? No, I haven't written for... Well, it was it was never a hobby, but... Um, no, I haven't written for... Oh, gosh. Something like... Uh, oh, it's quite frightening, actually, about 35 years. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, uh, that is nasty to so, contemplate. Well, my next question was going to be, do you miss it? But obviously not. Well, um, I'm sorry if you can hear my cat in the background, by the way. He's, uh, <laughs> he's being very noisy at the moment. Um, it, it, it came about, really, because simply because I stopped being able to do it. I, I don't know why it happened. Um, originally, I found that um, the, the, the way I actually created a story was from an, an initial idea or an initial image which then sort of crystallized over a certain period and then, then sort of put out tendrils, all kinds of associations, and gradually became more and more concrete until there was a story there. And it was that process which, which went wrong, you know, from, from the initial conception to the, to, the, to the actual story. And I don't know, what, I don't know why it happened, it just did it. And, and that's been, and that's it, that's the case, it's... Have you never tried lately or anything like that? Is it just... Well, the, most of my stories um, were written um, during the, the sort of 60s and early 70s. Um, the, the, to Have and To Hold was written after a gap of about two or three years, as was another story called Evolution, which hadn't yet been published. Um, and they were the sort of last gasp of it, really. Um, it's uh, it's a funny process. Perhaps I didn't have anything more to say. You know, it could have been as simple as that. Well, I'm right in thinking. Did you used to pen some stories for the New Worlds magazine? Uh, well, yeah, most of what I wrote was originally published in, in New Worlds, and I did some poems and some reviews and odd things like that. So, I, I, am I... Now, I don't know if I've, I've picked this up right or not. Are you friends with Mike Moorcock? Or is it, was it just he was an editor, yes, sent you yes, stories? I've known Mike for, for a very long time. I don't see him so much these days. In fact, I see him very rarely. But um, I was working on New Worlds with him. I was uh, associate editor for quite some time. And um, I used to live quite close at, at one time. Um, he was living in Labrick Grove, and I lived in um, uh, Colville Terrace, which was just five minutes away, literally. And um, used, to, uh, used to do a lot of work. So what is Langdon Jones up to now, then? What's, what's your interest now, Langdon? Well, I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing like, MIDI music, um, <laughs> which is a, a, a sort of something I find very interesting. It's trying, trying to um, recreate... Uh, something that sounds like a real performance of music, purely purely mechanic, so using samples. Um, there's a few of those on my website. Um, and I don't, apart from apart from that, just sitting 
wasting my time at the computer, which which I'm really enjoying. Ever, ever since I've retired, I've been very contented. Um, the last um, uh, the last three years of my life have been brilliant. Um, <laughs> not not having the pressure to work is uh, is a lovely thing. You can really appreciate life then. So you you know when you don't have the physical uh, attributes to be able to fully appreciate it, but there you go. You know when you were writing, then was that was mm. that your full time job when you were writing, or did you have your, your kind of the, the day job as well? I was oh gosh, uh, well a bit of both actually. Sometimes I was doing work and, and writing in my spare time. Other times I was doing various kinds of writing to support myself. Um, I worked for a slightly dubious publisher um, who was who was doing a lot of softcore pornography and um, I, I wrote quite a lot of articles for them, horoscopes, um, personal confessions, magazines, all this sort of stuff and um, churn that out at the rate of about, I think it's about three pounds for a thousand words in those days. Um, we brought in just about enough to uh, support us. But it, it was never a, it was never a happy situation, really. It's uh, you know you're, you're constantly well, it's the usual usual problem with freelance work. You're you're constantly waiting for the check, which is always delayed. And when it eventually comes, you spend all your money and then and don't have any until the next one. Um, it's not it's not an ideal way of living, I must say. Now, just before we, we started this interview, I was having a quick chat with you, and you, you actually mentioned that this this story, what we're going to play now, to have and to hold, it's actually going to be appearing in a magazine sometime next year as well. Is that right? Yes, it's coming out in a magazine called Prototype X, which is um, edited by um, Darren Partridge and, and a chap called L. Stearns Newberg. And it's, it's quite an interesting magazine. Uh, it, appears, it appears very infrequently, but... Uh, it's it's always worth looking at when it does come out. I think this is going to be the third issue. Does um, does your story still sell, Langdon, or are they kind of they're really tucked away there? And it's once in a blue moon when someone comes round and says, oh, "You're Langdon Jones. I'll take one of your stories." <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm a bit of a relic these days. Um, I don't know that um, people still seem to, to to manage to get hold of my my stuff. But it's uh, it's all out of print now. Um, apart from these odd things like uh, like prototype X and and um, your your Starship sofa. What what a, um, where? Hmm? What I was what's funny about it though is just say like prototype X and actually me as well. I remember you when you sent the story over to me. You had a little look over it. So <laughs> is that something that's it's it's dragging from the depths? Are you trying to like go through these stories again, or do you just? Don't even bother and just say, yeah, that, that's the story, use oh, it. Oh, no, I, you, you're never satisfied, that's <laughs> the thing. You're never, ever satisfied. Um, I, I don't really like anything I've ever written. Um, it's, it's, very, it's very difficult. I'm, I'm very, I, think, I think a lot of people are very self-critical when they do this kind of thing. And it's the same with music I write. I'm, I'm always um, very, very critical about that. Um, and I suppose it's a good thing in a way because you're always trying to improve, but it's ultimately a futile process. In a sense. 
Well, Langdon, it's, I'm really pleased that you've allowed Starship Sofa to have this story and to play it, and you know, I'm chuffed to bits that we've, we've had a chance to get together and have a little talk as well. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm very excited to hear it, because um, when, when I write, I've always had, had the idea of a narrator. Um, it's always there in the back of my mind, so it will, it will be very interesting for me to hear the thing actually spoken. Um, just, just to hear how well it works as a, as a, as in a different medium, as it were. And we've, we're actually, uh, you'll not be able to see it until it, the actual show comes out. But we've got some artwork as well to to go with that story, and that, the artworks, you know, it, it's excellent, you know. So you can have well, a look, I, have a look for that. <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly look forward to seeing it and hearing it. It's yeah. great. Well, Langdon, thank you so much. And just if anyone's interested, this is it's probably about five hours before I actually put the show together. This is such a last-minute call to Langdon. Langdon, thank you so much. That's OK, not at all. Thank you. So, again, I'm so proud to have this story. It is narrated by Neil Corbett. Neil is a technical artist at game developer Rocketstar in Leeds. His last published game was Grand Theft Auto, Chinatown Wars. He likes making things, karaoke, and his attempt to learn to play his ukulele. Even better than he does now. (laughs) Neil, thanks so much for this. A big long story for you there to get thrown in at the deep end. So Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present... To Have and to Hold by Langdon Jones Read by Neil Corbett He lies on his back, staring into the room. Light is visible, pale behind the curtains, and a green glow illuminates the head of the bed and the sheets. Indeed, were he to look, he would see his own hand lying on the sheet like the claw of a fabulous monster, green and hairy. But he does not look, preferring to keep his gaze from the light to remain blind in this warm night, enjoying the pervasiveness of the summer heat, a sensation just this side of discomfort. He moves slightly and stretches, enjoying a sensation of luxury and peace of mind, a feeling he has experienced many times recently. He hopes that she is happy too, and that the heat has not made her uncomfortable. He is about to ask her, but then decides against it. Partly, so as not to break the silence of the room, partly because he knows that he will not receive a satisfactory answer from her. He cannot tell much of what goes on inside her mind recently. At one time she had been much more outgoing than this, but he finds he can accept the change in her, as he can accept anything, so long as she is with him. Tomorrow is their wedding anniversary. He wonders whether she remembers... Not that it matters. So many things that were once important have now become trivial. At one time, anniversaries and birthdays had been of importance to them. Their life together had been much more stormy than it was today. Now they live together in a strange, subaqueous world, moved gently by slow currents. All the storms took place above, and they lived their lives unaffected by what took place around them. Barbara? He says abruptly. Yes? A soft, cool voice. Are you happy? I believe so, darling. In the quiet of the room, her voice is low and measured. I thought you were asleep. Soon, soon. 
Thinking of this quietened contentment, it was impossible for him to not think of the tumult and despair he had experienced not so long ago. Impossible to draw his mind away, even though the memories still had the power to disturb and frighten him. Impossible for him not to remember, even though to do so was to taste once more the agony he had felt then, the time when his world came to an end. An argument between husband and wife. Wavelets upon the bland surface of their marriage. Not the first, but certainly the most serious. But although it had meant so much at the time, he could not now even remember its cause. An absurd suspicion on his part. A wave of childish jealousy, completely unfounded. But he'd had to give voice to the absurdity. His comments cryptic and veiled. She had eventually lost her temper. She had said what he thought was unjust and unforgivable and so the pointless silly course of events had moved on, second by second, towards their climax. The time had been 11.42, and the second hand had continued to run its blind course round the enamel dial of the clock, marking in its crude way the progressions of eternity, round and round, as the same course of events happened over and over again, their figures, his tense fist upraised, face red, body thrust forward, hers disdainful, half turned away from him, her face as she looked back over her shoulder, twisted with a half-smile, half-sneer, both of them spotlit in the flare from future events, forced like marionettes to go through the same sequence over and over again, their gestures becoming more wooden, their words more meaningless with every repetition. They had by now completely lost control, as the second hand marked the artificial distinction between 11.42 and 11.43, so she had shouted something spiteful, something she didn't even mean, tears now beginning to run down her face, smudging her makeup, and he had stepped forward and pushed her violently. She had stumbled and had fallen against the sideboard. The meaningless crescendo continued, moving inexorably towards its meaningless climax, no power in heaven or earth could avert the stupidity of it. She turned, walked out of the room, slammed the door, grabbed her coat from the hook in the hall, although in fact the spring day had been bright and warm, and left the house, her passing marked by the slam of the front door, a detonation like that of a cannon. With her departure he could hear the tick of the clock marking the silence of the room, and with the silence came a sudden rush of remorse. He recognised the stupidity of what had occurred. Cursing himself, he followed her through the empty hall of the front door just in time to see her shut the car door and start the motor. The car moved from the curb with a sudden lurch and swung wildly across the road, accelerating on a course that was predetermined by all that had gone before. He saw her face as the car shot off, white and tense. Had a sentence been longer, an insult more elaborate... Had the build-up of anger taken a few seconds more, everything would have been different. The child would have run into the road, retrieved its ball, and gone back to the pavement, ignoring the white saloon that shot past a few seconds later. And then the web of the future would have extended with infinite possibility. But she was travelling along the wrong strand, approaching a cul-de-sac, only one way to go. He saw it all happening, as if in slow motion, saw it played out before him as if it were a drama staged by destiny to warn him of the error of his ways, not really happening, just to show what could happen as a result of his stupidity. The child darting into the road after its ball, a brightly coloured plastic thing, red and yellow, 
the car travelling much too fast, by then swerving as, with a desperate wrench of the wheel, she managed to avoid the child by a hand's breadth. The car, out of control, travelling at frightening speed, moving across the road rather than along it, the sound of tyres screaming on the tarmac, a lamppost standing there waiting for her, the distance lessening until the meeting was inevitable. No matter what happened now, nothing could stop that dreadful conjunction, but it had been inevitable from the first. This was just the culmination of all that had happened already. There was a sound like a ton of metal being dropped. A hundred yards away he saw the back of the car lift her foot in the air and then drop to the ground again. A wisp of smoke rose into the air, drifting above the car and then dispersing. All was still. Then the terrible and heavy stillness was broken by the sound of someone screaming. He saw the woman who screamed on the other side of the road nearer the car than he, middle-aged, her shopping bags upset when she had dropped them, her fist to her face pressed back up against the wall, the sound of her screams slicing through the hot air. The paralysis that had locked him suddenly left him free once more. He began to run, his stomach suddenly slack, a void inside him. He could not feel his legs moving, no sense of movement at all, but the car grew larger, became closer, and he knew that he ran. The lamppost he could now see was bent away from him, almost at an angle of 45 degrees, but the back of the car was undamaged. It looked almost as though it was parked and had come to a natural stop. Perhaps it wasn't as bad as it had seemed. Perhaps she was sitting in the car, shaken but unhurt. Perhaps the world would stop its rotation and start to spin in reverse, and the car and the lamppost would spring apart, and she would come driving backwards to the house, and he would be able to take her in his arms and tell her that he loved her. When he arrived at the car, he became totally passive and observer only while in his mind the black bells of horror swung, their sound rolling through his body in waves. The front of the car was a mass of twisted metal. Water was pouring from the wreckage and running along the gutter where it mingled with the thicker, redder liquid. The top of the crumpled bonnet was covered with broken glass. The windscreen was gone, only a shattered framework of crazed glass remaining. She was lying, face down, on top of the bonnet, her waist at the shell of the windscreen, her legs inside the car. She was bent forward as though suddenly overcome by weariness. One arm was beneath her body, the other was stretched out beyond her head along the bonnet. Bright red blood was coming from the underside of her body, soaking the material of her dress, running from beneath her in a slow, thick red stream which ran in a regular course across the buckled white metal, bifurcating and then splitting into a delta of individual streams, sliding over the edge of the bonnet and then running down to coalesce once more, where the wing still curved into a single stream which poured like a leaky tap into the gutter. The arm that stretched out was flopping up and down with a spasmodic, inhuman rhythm. Her hand, limply flapping, at the end of this awful arm was beating a rhythm on the metal, a fast, irregular rhythm that almost matched the fast, irregular rhythm of his heart. In a dream, he heard his own voice crying out her name. In a dream, he saw his own hand coming out and touching her body, and more real than reality, 
An analytical voice inside his head, cool, calm and collected, was repeating again and again, She's dead. Of course she's dead. There's no doubt about it. He gripped her shoulder and gently turned the upper part of her body onto its side. The sight that met his eyes was something from a horror film and didn't belong here in this suburban street. The analytical voice told him, This will give you nightmares for the rest of your life. The insane rhythm stopped now as he had moved her, and her arm flapped in the air as he looked into the ruin of her face. His eyes were fixed on her forehead, and he could see nothing else. The universe contracted until there was nothing else, nothing but the ruin of flesh and bone. Her forehead caved in like a fissure in rock, and the jagged piece of glass protruding from this fissure like some dreadful organ. He gently laid her down again into the pooled blood, and the rhythm of her hand on the metal began again. But now it was weaker, and soon it stopped. It was though his own heart had begun to slow in response, and the contraction of the universe continued until he was aware of hardly anything at all, only that he had sunk to his knees and that someone was trying to hold him under his arms. Impossible to think in that split second in which her head made contact with the windscreen, shattering it, moving on, the jagged glass slicing through the skull and into the soft tissues of the brain, that before her head came to its final resting place on top of the bonnet, everything that had made her his wife, an individual human being, Barbara, had been annihilated. How could such a thing be so? It was contrary to the rules of logic. Break the moment up into its individual particles of time. Where does Barbara end and a mess of insensate, insentient tissue begin? Was it as her forehead came into contact with the glass? Did the brain swim across the skull, smashing itself into oblivion so that even before the glass pierced her, she was not the woman he had loved? Did she cease to exist? Did everything that made her her, her life, her memory, her childhood, adulthood, love, hate, fear, joy, did it all cease to exist between the one thought and the next? Was it later? Was it the glass itself that took her from him? Did it, with every millimetre it penetrated into her brain, take away a little bit more of her from him? The essence of her, what made her Barbara, did it vanish with every quantum of forward motion? With every cell that died, did a little of her die with it? Impossible to believe. But something had to account for the transition between the person sitting in the car, the complex of memories, emotions and senses that made up the personality of the woman with whom he had shared his life, and the raw, ruined carcass which lay stretched out and bleeding on the wrecked bonnet of the car, a transition that had been virtually instantaneous. Easier to believe in some mysterious essence, an infusion of the spirit expired at the moment of the crash, rather than the wiping out of what had made her human because of the disruption of three pounds of jelly. But whichever way he looked at it, the sliver of glass had destroyed her, cutting its way into her brain and snapping thread by thread the warp and weft of that rich tapestry that had been her life. And perhaps the worst thing of all was that she had not died. The journey to hospital, lying on one side of the vehicle while surrounded by a group of men all very busy on their futile task, she lay on the other, was not a nightmare for the simple reason that it was more insubstantial and unreal than any dream could be.
the motion of the ambulance was not a comfortable feeling, but he drew comfort from it, and it was the only remotely real thing about the journey, which was over in a flash. He and she were both carried off in stretchers, she rather more swiftly than he. He saw the name of the hospital as he was carried inside, grey letters carved in a relief from the stone, their invasion of the third dimension giving them a spurious kind of dignity, like the decorations on a tombstone. Travelling along numberless corridors with fluorescent lights sliding past his eyes in a slow procession, he felt reality returning, a recrudescence of terror and disbelief. Suddenly this interminable journey through the corridors of this hospital seemed like an exploration into the labyrinths of his mind, and he knew that he would be content to lie here, penetrating deeper and deeper through the layers of his own sentience, until stupor covered him like a warm and suffocating blanket. But something made him resist the seductive languor, and he fought back, welcoming the hard light, the pain, the horror of reality, knowing that it had to be faced sooner or later, and needing to know what was happening to her. Was she dead already? Surely she was. If not, what were they going to do with her? Would they mercifully dispatch her, as, without a qualm, one would end the sufferings of a mutilated animal? How could she possibly survive with that awful unicorn horn? "'Where is Barbara?' he cried, and his voice was hoarse and distant, like the voice of another person. "'Where is she?' One of the people wheeling him along muttered something reassuring from behind him. With stupendous effort he levered himself upright until he was sitting on the stretcher with his feet dangling. "'Stop this thing. I want to get off. Where have they taken her?' They try to force him to stay on the trolley, and a ludicrous little struggle ensues he trying to get off weakly, and the attendants trying gently to push him back. His weakness prevails only because the attendants cannot use force on a sick man, but he gains strength from his little victory. "'Mr. Sayers,' says the attendant. "'How did he know my name? "'You are suffering from shock. "'Please lie back on the stretcher.' He slides to the floor. It seems a long way down. His legs are rubbery, and the floor has the consistency of gelatin. Nevertheless, he is capable of some form of locomotion, because he sees the walls and ceiling flowing past him like a liquid. The motion, once started, is impossible to stop, and he relaxes and allows his surroundings to flow past him. The face of one of the attendants appears in front of him. Where is she? he asks of it, but it disappears. He reflects that it is in bad taste to roam around the corridors like this, covered as he is in the blood of his wife but the whole accident has been a very serious breach of etiquette. Round a corner, past a startled sister, turning again, past a large window behind which patients are sitting patiently, and then to the right, down another corridor. "'Where is she? Where is my wife?' he calls to a frightened-looking nurse. Then, as he approaches, a door opens, and a figure steps into the corridor. The figure turns then to reveal a familiar face, an island of stability in this flowing world." "'John!' he hears himself calling. "'John, for God's sake, help me!' Faber's face shows a remarkable play of expression. First pleasure, then bewilderment, and finally dismay. The man steps forward, and as the flowing current becomes too powerful for him, he feels himself sinking, and feels the strong hands of Faber supporting him as he slides down beneath the waves of the swirling currents of unconsciousness. He yawns enjoying a sensation of animal luxury. It is so quiet in this room. 
He needs a lot of quietness now to make up for that time. He has been travelling too fast down the helter-skelter of time, and having arrived in a tumble at the bottom, he could now rest a little, enjoy a moment of stillness before standing up and dusting himself down. Peter? Her voice, soft and calm. Yes, love? I was wondering whether you were still awake. I was just thinking about John Faber. Ah, it was just chances being there. And yet, so much depended upon that chance. It's a frightening thought. Her accident had depended on the chance conjugation of many events. The row, the time, the engine of the car starting at the first attempt instead of the normal fourth or fifth, the ball, the child, and now salvation came by the same torturous route. Faber's being in the hospital at that time, in that particular corridor, and all the chance events that had led up to that. His torpor, his turning down this corridor instead of that, his coming by the door just at that time, John finishing his conversation with the surgeon just at that moment and stepping out. It was as though everything that had taken place had been on the outmost reaches of probability, as though at some point he had taken a wrong turning, blundering to the thin forking threads of chance, now a long way from where the central bowl ran smoothly, as though somewhere in the fibres of that bowl, Barbara and he had resolved their quarrel, and were living now in domestic uneventfulness, unaware of the stark tragedy that was taking place here, on the outer reaches of probability. John Faber, not the kind of person you would think of as a saviour. Short, plump, not to say fat, thinning grey hair and aggressive eyebrows, a pair of horn-rimmed glasses which he was always mislaying, doing some kind of research on computers. Barbara and he only had a vague idea of his work, but they knew that in his field he was a noted and respected figure. They had met him when they had moved to this area, and had struck up an acquaintance with him and his pale, rather dowdy wife. The couple had been invited over for bridge, and somehow the Friday night activity had solidified into a kind of tradition. One week at Faber's house, the next at theirs. But despite this, they knew little about the couple, enjoying their company on a superficial level. He wasn't even sure he particularly liked them. Barbara, he says, into the quiet room. Yes? Do you like the Fabers? What do you mean, like them? Oh, nothing. It doesn't matter. He turns over in bed, moving his cheek onto a cooler part of the pillow with a feeling of refreshment. He woke rising towards consciousness like a piece of waterlogged wood, rising through progressively lighter water, but not quite reaching the surface. He woke separated from the world by a barrier of unreality, as though he were observing everything through a sheet of glass. His emotions, too, were isolated in some way. He was aware of them, but they could not touch him. It was quite a long time before he realised that he had been heavily sedated. He was in a bed in the hospital, and for a while he watched the comings and goings of the staff with little interest, feeling completely drained of vitality. Soon after he woke, John Faber arrived at his bedside, slightly out of breath, a worried and strained expression on his face. He found it odd that Faber should be so concerned when the tragedy didn't really touch him at all. The man drew up a chair and sat down, puffing a little, looking down at his own knees. "'It's very bad, Peter,' he said. With that unnecessary prologue, he proceeded to unfold the facts. Barbara had still been alive when she had been brought into the hospital. An operation had been carried out on her brain, and for the rest of the night she had been lying in a coma. 
As dawn approached, so the coma had deepened, and as she failed, so her body had been artificially ventilated. There was not even enough damaged brain tissue to keep her body processes going. If they switched off the machine, said Faber, she would die. Her condition would not improve now. The surgeon who had performed the operation had hoped there might be some slight improvement afterwards, so that she would have survived even if that survival would have meant total inability, a vegetable existence, but the brain damage had been massive, and her deterioration after the operation had meant only one thing, that there was no chance for her. But I don't want you to give up hope completely, said Faber, and even in his drugged state he had lifted an eyebrow at this incongruity. Faber looked embarrassed, and scratched his thigh with absorbed interest. I can't say anything at the moment, but, well, as soon as you're ready enough to leave here, there is something I would like you to look at. With a great wave of weariness, the import of the situation came down on him. He imagined Barbara, her body sustained by machines, her brain now useless. Like a dagger of light came a sudden treacherous hope of recovery, but the light was extinguished by the darkness of despair for he knew that a miraculous recovery meant no more than the ability to breathe for herself. Barbara was gone, and could never return. In keeping her body alive, the surgeons were assiduously preserving something which had nothing at all to do with the totality of what she had been. You can see her if you like, said Faber. He was placed carefully in a wheelchair, and, cold and empty, with Faber walking by his side, traversed one appalling corridor after another until the intensive care unit was reached. The atmosphere of the place was quiet and efficient, and he found that in some way it reminded him of a church. They were met by a surgeon who looked down on him gravely with an air of authority and mystery of an officiating priest. Indeed, there was something priest-like in his role. In his hands he held the knowledge of life and death, and he wore his priestly robes with dignity. But while he could perform miracles, there was something he could not do, which, for his religious counterparts, was easy. He could not forgive sins. "'She's in here, Mr. Sayers,' he said, ushering them into a small room. "'Has Mr. Faber explained the situation to you?' "'If they switch off the machine, she, she will die.' Even now he found himself wondering about the air of authority that Faber had here. Was he a heart specialist in his spare time?' The surgeon did not reply to his remark, and then he forgot him, Faber, and everything, for there she was. At first he saw only the gigantic cylinder which enclosed her, but then he saw that from one end her head and shoulders protruded. At first glance he was reminded of a cocoon, but no butterfly would emerge triumphantly from this apparatus. Her head was heavily bandaged. A tube led from her arm into a drip that was standing beside her. Other tubes ran from her nostrils. Wires led from somewhere into an electrocardiograph, on the screen of which a little green dot traversed the hills and dales of her heartbeats. As he drew close, he saw that the bandage covered her head like a cap, and a patch on the front extended down to cover her nose. Her face, save for the chin, was black with bruises. What he could see of her nose was swollen and puffy. He could barely recognise her. There was no sign of life at all, save for the two regular breaths which whistled in and out of her slightly parted lips. He reflected vaguely that at this moment he should be weeping, but in fact he had never felt further from tears. Perhaps it was the drugs, 
Perhaps it was something else, some protective mechanism of grief. He felt oddly detached. It was as though he was not looking down at his wife, but at some evocative alien object, worthy of pity, but not despair. And then, with a jolt, he realised this was exactly the situation. And this thing, lying there, breathing, or rather being breathed, had nothing to do with her. It was a possession, one of her things. Like her coats, her jewellery, her shoes, her handbag, the Victorian doll she had cherished. John, he said, turning to the man with a great sense of bewilderment. Why are they doing it? Why are they keeping her like this? The surgeon stepped forward and coughed, looking a little embarrassed. Well, it's not strictly a medical matter. Uh, Well, in a way it is, but... He was disconcerted to see the surgeon so discomforted. This was certainly not what he had expected. Faber broke in, looking somewhat nervous and sweaty. It's not something I think we should go into yet, Peter. Not at this stage. We can't save her life, you know that old chap. But perhaps we might be able to do something to ease your suffering. If we can just keep her out, well, like this, for a few days longer, until you're well enough to make your mind up, then perhaps we'll see. He didn't know what Faber was talking about, and was going to protest. What right did they have to keep her in this condition? Were they even going to allow her body to die decently? But then a sudden gush of weariness overtook him again, and he realised it didn't really make a slightest difference what they did. She was gone, and that was all there was to it. What difference did anything else make? He had imagined in that first day that he had reached the extremity of his suffering, forgetting that the world had been buffered by the administration of the sedative drugs. As the dosage was cut, so the world became closer and harder, and so his pain grew. He would wake up in the morning with a feeling of numb misery, and for a second after waking, his mind would cast about for the cause of this pain. Then he would remember that his wife was dead, and the shock would overtake him so strongly that he would feel his bowels wrench, his heart lose a beat, and would clutch at his body as though he were experiencing a physical agony. It would happen during the day too. Barbara is dead, an inner voice would say, and he would experience the sudden loss of breath and the wrench of pain. Ludicrous! He had not forgotten that she was dead, but the sudden knowledge of her death would overtake him again and again, racking his body unbearably. Lying in the hospital bed, he watched the routine of the ward going by without taking part in it in any way. When some notable event occurred, as when an inexperienced nurse hurrying to serve a meal upset a dinner all down the front of an irate gentleman with a white moustache, the gravy-soaked meat actually falling into his lap and, judging by his reaction, burning him quite painfully, he found himself framing the event into an anecdote to tell Barbara, and then it would come down on him again, as if he were being doused with icy water, his teeth chattering, his mouth filling with bile. But despite this, he was soon pronounced fit enough to leave hospital, and he found himself dressed once more in his own clothing, which some kind person had cleaned, ready to leave wondering how he could possibly summon up the physical courage necessary to travel back down that road, see the lamppost, enter the house, look at her things, taste the emptiness of his new life. He was gratified beyond measure when John Faber arrived and invited him along to stay at his house for as long as he wanted. Apart from the relief at not having to return home, there was much he wanted to ask the man. Faber seemed to know everything that was going on. He seemed to know why Barbara's body was still hooked up to the machines, still animated by a kind of pseudo-life. He was beginning now to feel strong enough to ask him why, but 
Faber had preserved a mysterious silence on the matter, I would not be drawn, even when he saw that the mystery was adding to the pain. When you're well enough, and when everything is ready, I'll show you, he said. It's not something that can be explained. As the days passed in the company of Faber's quiet little wife, so he began to feel physically stronger. The yawning emptiness of his future existence still stretched before him. He still felt the physical shocks of remembrance, although perhaps these shattering moments were now less frequent. But something else had taken their place, and that was the utter impossibility of life without Barbara. It was only by their absence that the bonds between them had manifested themselves so strongly. Before he had accepted them without thinking about them, without being aware of their strength, now whatever he experienced was not enough through his senses only, but through hers as well. Conversations were stored so he could tell her about them afterwards. When an opinion was expressed, he wondered what she would think. Without her, he was an amputee, whose limb had been unmercifully torn away, and his phantom pain was an agony that was with him night and day. But he had retained some kind of equilibrium, some hold on the slippery surface of life which enabled him to live from day to day, to make the right responses, say the correct things. And when his incomprehension about the whole mystery of his wife's living body and the connection with this of Faber, a man who had nothing to do with the world of medicine, reached the point at which it was causing him acute distress, Faber announced that tomorrow he would show him something that would explain everything. The time hasn't been right up till now, he told him, but we have just made the breakthrough we were waiting for. I've been afraid before, thinking we might not be able to offer you any hope, but now I know we can. What do you mean, offer me hope? How can you... Tomorrow, said Faber. "'smiling like the Sphinx. "'The next morning he was sitting in a car with Faber, "'on the way to the laboratory, "'feeling a strong sense of foreboding and nervousness "'that twisted his stomach. "'The nightmare of Barbara's accident "'had shaded into another kind of nightmare "'in which everyone seemed to know what was going on except him. "'And the less he understood, the more insecure he felt, "'the more he needed his wife. "'But he could no longer draw strength from her presence. "'He didn't understand how he could live without her, and yet he had survived a week already. Future life was just a succession of weeks. He had managed to get through seven days of existence, knowing she was gone forever, and here he was, sitting in Faber's car, listening to the windscreen wipers, watching the drops of water as they ran slanting down the window beside him, looking out through the drizzle at the grey buildings as they passed. With an effort, he wrenched his mind away from the void and tried to think of nothing, tried to concentrate only on watching the sliding greyness of the buildings, watching the people standing patiently at a bus stop under an array of umbrellas, a man unloading loaves of bread from a van, a little boy eating an incongruous ice cream, a man without umbrella or raincoat smoking his pipe upside down to keep out the rain. Here we are, said Faber, turning the wheel. They passed into the entrance of a private road coming to a stop at a red and yellow barrier. A guard approached the car and saluted when he recognised Faber. The barrier lifted and the car surged forward, approaching a large building mirrored with a multitude of windows. Of course, said Faber, my department doesn't occupy the whole building. There are all kinds of cybernetic research going on here, but since we had our original breakthrough we've taken over a large part of it. They left the car, huddled over to protect themselves from the rain, and ran towards the nearest door. Inside the building, Faber was treated with the utmost deference by everyone they encountered, and it became clear that he really was an important man. Inside the lift, they rose to one of the upper floors, and once more a dreamlike veil seemed to film reality. 
What was he doing here in a strange building with a man he didn't really know much about when Barbara was gone? They exited the lift and passed through a pair of double doors and into a large room where Faber picked up a bunch of correspondence handed to him by his secretary. They continued through a further door into an enormous, comfortably furnished office. The furniture included a large oaken bookcase stretching from ceiling to floor and covering almost one entire wall, crammed with various books, technical journals and papers. There were also more business-like items, such as a glass-fronted cabinet beside the desk containing various metallic objects. Faber ushered him into a chair on the near side of the large desk and then selected a chair for himself and came and sat next to him, aware, probably, that had he sat in his accustomed position behind the desk, he would be in an elevated situation and the interview would become all the more formal. Now, Peter, I brought you here to show you something. Something you will find incredible. Something that only a very few people know about. You know my line of work, I believe. You are something to do with the development of computers, Sayers replied, suddenly feeling horribly bored and realising that he was now not at all curious about what Faber had to show him. Exactly. For the last 15 years, I've been working on ways of reducing the size of computers and designing different kinds of circuitry. Originally, the idea was to produce portable computers that could sit on people's desks. Well, 10 years ago, in this laboratory, we stumbled on something really big. The discovery was made almost accidentally, a side product of something else, but once we had it, we realized how important it was, and our research took a new direction. At that time, we were just occupying a few rooms on the ground floor, but what we found was so important and far-reaching that our facilities were expanded, and we were given a massive research grant by the government. Our work was kept secret to prevent others from working in the same direction. Basically, what we discovered was a totally new way of making computers. The trouble with the computer of the 1980s is that it takes up too much room. Sheer size puts a limit on the complexity that can be attained. A tiny fraction of human brain tissue contains infinitely more neurons than the most sophisticated computer. To make a computer with a hundredth of the complexity of the human brain has been out of the question. That is why the computer as we know it can never be more than a calculating machine, despite the ingenuity of its programs. What we've found, and I'll have to put it simply because basically it is a simple concept, was a way of making complex electrical circuits from crystalline growths. He went to the glass-fronted cabinet, took from it a lump of greyish substance, and offered it. He took it from Faber, and turned it over in his hands, looking at it without interest. It was like a hard, greyish honeycomb. "'That piece you are holding in your hand,' said Faber, portentously, "'has the potential complexity of more than all the computers in the world.' He looked out through the window, although there was nothing to see from where he sat." apart from the dark lines of the rain against the sky and the drops running down the window, moving slowly, each drop following a zigzag course as it picked up water from the isolated droplets like an amoeba ingesting its food, growing larger and then moving more swiftly, running down the pane, but then stopping abruptly at some invisible obstruction. We found that in terms of calculations per second, it was completely outclassed by the simplest machine, but this wasn't failure, it was success. It couldn't do what a normal computer could do, but it had unbelievable potential. It was basically a decision-making machine. When faced with a problem unlike anything it had encountered before, it could make its own decision as to which course to take. We had something infinitely more exciting than a calculating machine. If you like, we had made something that could be creative. He strode to the cabinet again, 
and took out a large shining piece of metal and brought it back to the desk, holding it in his cupped hands, setting it down carefully. It was a round brassy object, covered with curved plates of golden metal fitted together to form a kind of squashed hemisphere. This was the prototype, said Faber, a machine which had the potential to perform most of the functions of the human brain. He felt a stir of interest as he listened, and began to concentrate on what Faber was saying. Of course, such a creation has boundless possibility, and all kinds of research are going on at the moment, but there is one area in which we've been working which should be of interest to you. You see, we reasoned that if the thing could work like a brain, why could it not actually take that function? We encountered all kinds of difficulties when we tried to build a humanoid robot. These difficulties encouraged us to try something else, to go even further. It is the fruit of that research that I want to demonstrate to you now. Would you like to come with me and see? He followed Faber as he rose and walked through a further door, and he found himself in a medium-sized room with several technicians and what appeared to be medical men, all busily engaged. The walls were lined with complex machinery, and in one corner a group of men in white coats clustered about a large couch which itself was surrounded by machinery. Faber was acknowledged as the two men entered the room, and he strode to one of the men standing near the couch and touched his arm. "'Is everything all right?' he asked. "'All functions are within normal parameters,' the man said. With that, he suddenly became aware of what appeared to be a human form lying on the couch. A large hemispherical lamp shone down, and while some of the men bent over the body, others operated or just stared at the apparatus that surrounded it. Faber moved over to the couch and glanced down, then he looked up at him and made a gesture to approach. He stepped forwards. It was a woman. She lay completely motionlessly on the couch while the men were withdrawing electrodes from her head, a sphygmomometer from her arm, various wires from her other limbs. Come and look at her. She was young, fairly undistinguished in appearance, dark-haired with a thin face. Her eyes were shut, and now she had been disconnected from the apparatus. Her arms were now lying at her sides. Her breast rose and fell regularly. Touch her, said Faber. He put out his hand, withdrew it again. With a gesture of his head, Faber urged him on. He stretched out his hand again. There was nothing unusual about the way she felt, although he was surprised that she did not react in any way to his fingers on her cheek. Wake up, Faber said quietly, and instantly her eyes sprang open, revealing irises of a startling blue. How are you feeling? Everything is functioning correctly. Her voice was low and rather flat. She did not look at Faber as she answered. Would you sit up, please? Immediately she did so, sitting bolt upright, looking ahead with a rather fixed gaze. There was something very odd about her, as though something essential was lacking. There was something desperately wrong, but he couldn't put his finger on what it was. Is there anything unusual about her? said Faber. Is she a woman who would stand out in a crowd? He paused. Well, I suppose not. Faber walked round the couch and to the side of the woman, where he laid his hand on her head as if he were about to stroke her hair. What you are looking at, he said portentously, is a woman who has been dead for three days. With that, Faber plucked off her wig. Her head was completely shaved. A vivid scar ran round, circling her head completely and he could see that recently in the past the entire dome of her head had been lifted off in one piece. He felt a momentary wave of nausea, but then his feeling of repulsion suddenly gave way to a sense of weak, sickly excitement. 
dead? There is an artificial brain in the cranial cavity, not only keeping all the body functions going, but capable of much more. She died three days ago after an operation to correct coarctation of the aorta. I had already been in touch with the surgeons of the hospital. Indeed, several of them had been working with me on the project. And once permission from the relatives had been obtained, we called the body and transported it here. Of course, the relatives don't know about the kind of work we're doing. He looked on in wonder as the woman sat patiently on the edge of the bed. Faber put her wig back on, giving her a more human appearance. Indeed, sitting quietly like this, when the essential flatness and lack of personality could not be noticed, she did look like any other woman, and it was almost impossible to believe what Faber had said. Of course, I'm not suggesting that the D3 brain has anything like the efficiency of the human brain, either in mental capacity or in running the autonomic functions, but it doesn't need to. The brilliance of this whole operation comes from the mechanical-biological interconnections, and it was a research team from the hospital which did most of the work in that area. You can imagine the complexity of the connections with the spinal cord. Without the brain taking up vast supplies of blood, oxygen, nutrients and hormones, the body can be run less efficiently. The carotid and vertebral arteries, which normally would take the blood supply to the brain, are connected to the internal jugular veins and go straight back to the heart. This puts less of a strain on the heart, lungs, and the circulatory system generally. In fact, the whole metabolism can be slowed. We retained the medulla oblongata and made most of the connections to the D3 through that organ. The rest of the brain was removed and thrown away. The brain itself operates on a current of about three hundredths of a volt, although impulses sent to the nervous system are much smaller, comparable with those sent out by the natural brain. As he looked into the bright blue eyes of the girl, he began to fancy that there, buried deep in the irises, he could discern some kind of intelligence, and he suddenly found he was shaking so much he could hardly stand up. He suddenly understood everything. Faber's reticence, the embarrassment of the surgeon, why they had kept Barbara alive. The idea was obscene, but thrilled him with a black excitement. "'Why don't you talk to her?' Faber asked. He looked up at Faber and then back to the girl. For a second, the idea of talking to a corpse was preposterous, but the feeling passed. "'Hello,' he said. She looked at him and smiled. "'Hello. What is your name?' "'I do not understand what you mean.' "'When preparing the D3 brain for implantation,' said Faber, "'we carried out only a limited amount of pre-programming.' The brain will be more natural if we allow it to learn for itself and not impose our own responses on it. Of course, we've had to put in quite a vast program for just the basic functions, but we've left the whole thing as open as possible. And of course, we're experimenting with various kinds of programs for various applications. Can she move? he asked. Of course she can. Tell her to get up. Can you sit up? he asked the girl, feeling vaguely solicitous. With a fluid motion, she sat up and turned, her legs dangling over the edge of the couch. Will she be able to walk? Faber smiled. She can do anything, anything at all. The man motioned him over to the other side of the room and then called. Come over here. The girl rose to her feet and, dragging one leg with a grotesque limp, walked unsteadily across the room. You see, we have a problem there, said Faber. With a cadaver, there's always a delay. Tissues degenerate. The girl came and stood before them, her face expressionless. 
You see, whispered Faber, you see what we could do? He turned back to the girl again. Your name is Mary. What is your name? My name is Mary, she said in a cool level voice. I can't believe it, he said wonderingly. I see it, but I, I can't believe it. How can she speak? The D3 brain is connected directly to the spinal cord, the girl replied in an expressionless voice. This enables it to take over all the autonomic functions of the body. There is also a flow of information through the sensory nerves, which the brain is capable of interpreting. This two-way flow of information from the sensory organs and motor impulses from the brain is the same as with the natural brain. The D3 brain controls the breathing and the larynx, and by a complex manipulation of these, it can produce a voice by perfectly natural means. It controls the voice as it controls all the other bodily functions. I'm sorry, he heard himself saying weakly. I just can't believe it. I told you it was difficult to take in. Faber abruptly swung his hand and viciously slapped the girl across the face. Sayers was instinctively about to react, but then he saw that she remained standing there and moving, apparently oblivious of the blow. You see, the pain network proved to be impossible to connect for various reasons. Oddly enough, though, if she picked up a hot kettle, she would drop it, because that reflex doesn't require the cooperation of the brain and takes place in the spinal cord. Some reflexes have had to be programmed in, and others are half biological and half mechanical. Suddenly he thrust his fingers at her eyes. Instantly her eyes shut and her arm came up to ward off the blow. Thus, continued Faber, all the vulnerable parts of the body are protected. Mary, commanded Faber, pick up that tray and put it on that bench over there. The girl obediently bent and lifted the tray, moving across the room with an awkward gait, her leg dragging. Suddenly he realised once more that he was watching an animated corpse, with no real life or sentience of its own, and he became conscious of a thick feeling of disgust in his throat. This feeling was increased by her total unthinking passivity, which in itself was repellent. She put the tray down and turned. Faber indicated for him to give a command. "'Mary?' he called, feeling a certain embarrassment. "'Come here, please.' The girl came slowly towards him, her eyes fixed on his. Despite the red scar which disfigured her under her wig and the previous sight of her shaven head, which had given her the appearance of a shop-window dummy, he found it impossible to believe that there was no real intelligence in those blue eyes which fixed on his so candidly. The girl halted and waited in front of him, her breast rising and falling gently. Suddenly... The wonder and the sadness of it all came home to him, and he was full of a tender, wondering kind of compassion for the person she was, for her body, for the brain that controlled her. Come closer to me, he whispered. She stood close. Gently, tremblingly, he put out his hand and touched her cheek. Be gentle with me, big boy, she said. This is my first time. He turned, puzzled, towards Faber. I'm, uh, sorry about that. Uh, you understand we were working on various programs, you know, thinking, as it were, about possible applications. Then he abruptly turned to a technician and shouted, For God's sake, who is responsible for this? Who programmed that into the D3? Was it you, Richards? Were you the one? What was it, an error? Or your gross sense of humour? Faber strode across the room and continued berating the technician, but he was not worried about the faux pas. He stared into the eyes of the girl, sensed the warmth of her body, saw the slow movements of her breathing. Mary, he whispered to her, are you alive? Really alive? 
The D3 brain, came the unexpected reply to his rhetorical question, is not alive in the conventional sense, any more than is any other kind of computer. However, the complex lattice of its crystalline structure gives it a flexibility not usually associated with the machine. It is capable of assimilating a great deal of information and of basing its decisions upon a great many different factors in the same way as a human brain, although, of course, its capacity is not as great. It is capable of learning and will respond to unusual situations in much the same way as the human brain. As Faber walked back towards them, the girl was still talking in her flat and toneless voice, but a tremor spread over her, beginning on one of her legs and then spreading upwards until her entire body was shaking. She continued to talk all this time, and, when she abruptly collapsed and began to writhe with devastating muscular convulsions, continued to expound on the virtues of the D3 brain, although her sentences were now chopped up by the spasms of her breathing. The feed-through between the sensory systems and the motor systems is so perfect that the brain will respond to its surroundings in a variable manner, but learning from experience. She continued to talk as she was lifted from the floor and carried back to the couch where she was surrounded by men once more, all busy connecting up the machines. He could not see what was going on and found that he was shaking all over, the movements of his body imitating hers at the beginning of the collapse. She's fibrillating, one of the technicians called. The movements round the couch became more urgent. Machinery was wheeled to the side of the couch. He caught a glimpse of her bare breast, terminals being held up to her soft flesh, before his sight was blocked once more by one of the men. For half an hour there was silence while the men worked, Faber watching on anxiously. Even the girl herself stopped talking, her sentences becoming more and more disjointed, and finally ceasing altogether. Abruptly he became aware of a feeling of relaxation, and the men straightened. Faber came back over to him, rubbing his eyes. The body conked out, he said. It was the heart. Either the tissue had degenerated or there was a blood clot. A thrombosis is more likely. It's the delay that does it. If the body was still alive, we could keep it connected to the heart-lung machine while we transferred the brain. There wouldn't be any problem, then. He felt glazed, frightened, and excited. What do you think? Faber was saying, looking up into his eyes. There would be no cost. It would be an experiment, and financed entirely by the government. It wouldn't be her, not exactly. No more than Mary was the girl who lived before. Nothing on earth could restore Barbara to what she was. But then a photograph would not be her either, and no one would condemn you for keeping one. And how much more like her this would be than a photo? It would be her in the physical sense, anyway. What is it, says, old boy? Yes or no? He felt a thick kind of disgust, and almost found himself refusing. But then the sickly weakness flooded through him again, and he gave way to it completely, feeling weak at the knees. Yes, he heard himself whispering. Yes, yes, yes. He was later shown the D3 brain that was to be implanted in Barbara's skull, a delicate but weighty construction, the outside consisting of curved golden plates which appeared to be riveted or hinged at the side. He had a long interview with the programming psychologist, during which he was asked a great many questions relating to his life with Barbara, each of which seemed to be more intimate than the last. He felt a sense of shame as this interview progressed. Probing such areas seemed to be an intolerable invasion. The intimacies of their life together should have been sacrosanct at this particular time, and by answering the questions he had the awful feeling of betrayal. 
that every memory exposed to the disinterested probing of the psychologist was diminishing their relationship in some way. But at the same time, he knew that it was the only way he could preserve even a travesty of what their relationship had been, and so he answered, even when to answer seemed a crime. There was a long and rather formal interview with Faber, at which he had to sign the documents authorising the implantation, and some others in which he promised to reveal to no one what had been done. Faber also took the opportunity of explaining some of the practical details to him. The operation will take about 12 to 15 hours. After that, we'll have to make a lot of tests, and we would like to keep her under observation for a day or two, just to make sure the body is functioning as it should. We'll have to shave her head, as we did with that dead girl, and, of course, there will be bad scarring on her forehead from the accident. But with a wig, she should look all right, and the scar will gradually improve. Healing processes will be normal. She will recover from her accident as a normal person would recover. Physical processes will be more or less the same. Uh, She will be continent and quite capable of attending to those functions for herself. Her hygiene routine will be normal. She will probably need to eat at more regular intervals than before, although her calorific requirements will be slightly less. You will have to make sure that she drinks at least a pint of fluid a day. It will be necessary to keep a strict check on her weight from week to week, and I'll give you a chart to keep track of her weight. It will be necessary to do urine tests from time to time, uh, to make sure there is not too much glucose in the blood, but that is a very simple procedure. Because her brain does not require any blood, the circulatory system is being modified, as I explained before, placing less of a strain on the heart and lungs. Her heart rate will be about 40 beats per minute instead of 72. In the same way, her breathing rate will be slower. The brain runs on a small battery which will be implanted in the abdomen. This battery will have to be changed every two years, but uh, this will only necessitate a small operation. Like Mary, she will have no sense of pain. The brain has been programmed to avoid any situations that could cause damage, so there should not be a problem. Just be vigilant. You will find that the brain functions will improve as time goes on. The brain will learn a vast amount during the first year, and it will soon be able to cope with any situation it is faced with. There may be one or two incongruities at first, but these should lessen as time goes on. In fact, in terms of behaviour and appearance, she will be just like any person recovering from a serious accident. The important thing is for you to forget about the brain as much as possible. Try to think of it, her, as being your wife. I'm not saying that you will be able to forget but try to guard against any feelings that there is something alien about her. We're not pretending to give you your wife back. What we are doing is giving you something of her. Not a machine. Not Barbara. Something somewhere between the two. I'll make no secret of the fact that one or two of the psychologists attached to this project have felt that what we're doing is not right. They feel that you will feel cheated, that you will not be able to accept her as she will be but I don't think they're right. You won't be getting your real wife, a real woman, but I think you understand that. I think you will accept her for what she is. I just want to be able to help you. I know how you have suffered, and if I can ease that suffering in the slightest degree, I will know that I have succeeded. He felt embarrassed to hear Faber discussing his pain like this, and wanted nothing so much as to be out of this room and away from it all. This world of animated corpses, of horror film brain implants, but 
Something held him, some awful fascination, a black desire. Perhaps there would be something of Barbara remaining. He was reminded of the analogy of the brain being like the conductor of an orchestra. Well, perhaps the body had musics of its own, could play on the cellular level the symphonies of life. He looked up at Faber. When will it be? As soon as possible. We want to carry out the operation tomorrow. She should be able to leave a week later. It's probably best if you don't see her between now and then. If you would like to return to your house, we can bring her round when we are satisfied that she is progressing normally. After that, it's up to you. He had moved back into their house, no longer feeling the horror of seeing it again. The lamp post had been restored, and even that was no longer capable of hurting him. The object he now passed was nothing to do with that bent and twisted thing that had killed, hurt his wife. At home, looking in the wardrobe at her clothes, he could now reflect that it should not be long before she was wearing them, and they no longer had the power to stab him. But at times, when in contact with something of hers, he would suddenly sink to the ground, clasping the object in his hands, feeling faint, his limbs trembling uncontrollably. But before, there had been no hope. Nothing. Now the future was uncertain. At times he thought with joy that his wife was coming home to him. At other times it suddenly struck him that he was proposing to live the rest of his life with a machine. When he rang the hospital to ask about the results of the operation, his hands shaking as he dialed, barely capable of asking for news, a wash of joy sweeping over him as he was told that it had been completely successful, he was not inquiring about a machine. He was asking about Barbara. The days of isolation were broken by a visit from their next-door neighbour, Jane Hailsham, a woman who had enjoyed Barbara's company. She was tall and thin and leaned forward eagerly as he told her of Barbara. He could not tell her about the brain implant, and merely said that she had suffered a serious concussion and would soon be coming home. She picked her way down the path, relieved to hear the news, and he went back into the house, conscious that in some way Jane's query had made everything more real, had solidified the events into a reality in which his injured wife would return home to recover. He just hoped that his tone of optimism would be justified. As the week progressed, he found it ever more difficult to retain his stability and to fight off the mood swings which had become more extreme as time went on. But finally the day dawned, bright and sunny, the new leaves on the trees so green that they looked like they had been painted. He sat waiting for the unknown, looking through the window at the street that had been a scene of carnage only recently. But now it was peaceful the shifting patterns of the leaves casting moving shadows on the pavement that was now splashed with sunlight. The dark and morbid thoughts that swirled in his brain were completely at variance with the delightful day, the scents of spring. As Faber's car drew up, he felt again the contraction of reality he had felt at the time of the accident. In his mind was a memory of Barbara as he had last seen her, lying in the respirator, festooned by wires and tubes, her face distorted by swelling and dark bruises, and he half expected to see a zombie come from the car, a shambling figure, flesh decomposing, bony hands held out towards him like hooks. He ran to the front door to open it, his bowels like water, incapable of moving down the path towards the car. Faber got out and cheerily waved to him, then walked round the side of the car and opened the door. A figure was visible inside, 
His hands gripped the door jam tightly, seeking an anchor to fix him to reality. Faber held the door open, and she got out of the car. The man remained standing there at the car, watching as she opened the gate and walked up the path towards him. He felt a profound swelling horror. This was not Barbara. Her face, her body, her walk, all was normal, but this was not his wife, not even a human being. There was a deadness in her expression. Her eyes were blank. Of her vitality, her personality, there was not a trace. For a moment he felt the full shock of her death for the first time and grunted as though he had been hit in the stomach. But then there was a sudden miraculous shift in reality and the feelings vanished as though they had never been. He saw that he had been wrong. She came to a halt in front of him and he stared at her, his eyes wide. There was a bright red scar in the centre of her forehead, and her face was still covered with bruises, but it was she. Her wig was lighter than her natural hair and styled differently, but it was she. Perhaps something was lacking, but at the same time, it was she. Without doubt, it, it was Barbara. He whispered her name, and then she had stepped forward, and she was in his arms. Pressing her against him, he felt the blood singing in his ears. Her body was warm and firm in his arms. The scent of her was filling his nostrils once more. He felt her arms on his back, her lips gentle at his neck. He knew the brain had been programmed to respond in this way, but the knowledge could not touch him now. Not now, with his wife in his arms, miraculously restored from the void of death. Dimly, he heard a car door slam and heard Faber driving away. Dimly, he was aware of bringing her back into the house, closing the door, being alone with her once more. Dimly, he was aware of saying to her over and over again, I'm sorry, it was my fault. I'm so sorry. I love you. Oh, Barbara. Oh, Barbara, we're together again. I am happy to be back. Oh, my God, D did you suffer much? I do not understand what you mean. Her flesh was warm, she breathed, she smiled, her eyes were liquid. He knew that under her wig was the livid circular scar, but he didn't look. Sit down, love, I'll make you a cup of tea. I'm capable of preparing tea. She went out into the kitchen. He sat there in a daze of happiness, hearing the clink of crockery, her presence filling up the house once more, bringing it all to life again, as she herself had been brought to life. Unable to sit still, he went out into the kitchen and held her, hugging her tightly, she pausing in her preparation of the tea, allowing him to embrace her from behind, covering his hands with her own. Oh, God, darling, it's you. It's really you. Yes, she replied, her voice strangely level and toneless. Barbara Sayers. You'll never leave me again, will you? She smiled. No, never, darling. Later, his excitement abated, and a warm glow took its place. During the day, he had been in a delirium of happiness, marvelling at everything she did, unable to sit down for more than a few seconds at a time, feeling a total delight in her. In the evening, he relaxed more, sitting with her on the sofa, a drink in his hand, and all the nightmares of the past weeks seemed to be behind him. As when one awakes, one forgets the terrors of the dream, so in awakening to this joy, his horrors seemed diminished. He could not now even remember the intensity of his feelings, 
but nevertheless tried to recreate what he had felt in the same way that a man who has been to a dentist will worry with his tongue the sight of a bad tooth as if to reassure himself that the pain has truly gone. And so he sat with her, stroking her hand, unable to take his eyes off her, and she turned on him from time to time the intimate smile that he remembered so well, and which he thought he would never see again. He switched on the television to a program she had always particularly enjoyed, and he watched her as she looked at the screen. She stared with a strange vacancy of expression, but he was sure she was getting pleasure from the program. After all, it was one of her favourites. The simple act of watching television with her, although she was the only one who looked at the screen, he was content to stare at her face, her lips slightly parted, the sweep of her eyelashes, the stillness of her hands in her lap, gave him more pleasure than he thought possible. A sweet sense of warm relaxation that even the sound of the doorbell could not diminish. He was not pleased by the intrusion, but he felt that now nothing could interfere with his happiness. Earlier it had been a fragile thing, and he had sensed that it might easily be shattered, but as the hours had gone by it had become more secure, and even the presence of a stranger would not be able to affect it now. It was Jane Hailsham. He knew that he had been right not to hint that there was anything special to say about Barbara's condition. He had been afraid then that when Barbara returned something might betray the fact that she wasn't now the woman she had once been, but he had no fear of that now. "'How is she, Mr. Sayers?' Jane asked breathlessly. She was carrying a bunch of flowers and was wearing the kind of expression which afflicts those around the bed of a dying stranger, a kind of strained seriousness, a deliberate repression of anything that could suggest levity. He felt his face breaking out in a broad grin. She's fine. Perfectly all right. Come in. Jane picked her way into the hall, still leaning forward a little, all legs, like a heron. Really? Thank God. It was such a bad accident, so I heard. I'm so glad that it ended up well. Will it be bad for her, my visiting her like this? Shouldn't she be kept in the quiet? No, really, she's completely back to normal, apart from a few bruises. Barbara, darling, called Jane, and embraced her. How are you, my poor sweet? I am very well, thank you, said Barbara. May I ask who you are? Jane's mouth opened and didn't close. A little amnesia, he said hurriedly, feeling obscurely angry that he had to make this excuse for his wife. This is Jane Hailsham, darling, your friend. Hello, Jane, said Barbara. You poor darling, said Jane, sinking onto the sofa next to Barbara, handing her the flowers. You really can't remember me? There are many things I can't remember, but this does not affect my functioning, and I am capable of learning. Jane looked wildly at him, and then back to Barbara again, as she sat with the flowers on her lap. But how are you feeling in yourself? I am very well, thank you, Jane, said Barbara. Was it awful? Was what awful? The, the accident. I'm afraid I cannot understand what you mean. I mean... The whole thing, the the accident, I, I suppose you don't remember anything about it. There are many things I cannot remember. Oh, oh, I suppose it, it will all come back to you in time. He felt supremely happy and began to relax as he watched Barbara and her friend chatting away, sitting together on the sofa as they had in the old days. Barbara even made a cup of tea and served it perfectly. Admittedly, their conversation did not have the kind of animation there had once been before the accident, and Jane did seem rather disconcerted once or twice, although he couldn't think why. 
The two women sitting together and chatting away seemed such a normal, everyday thing that it was a great surprise when suddenly Jane burst into tears, grabbed Barbara's hand and pressed it, then got up and rushed for the door. Outside, he found her standing in the hall, a handkerchief pressed to her face. "'Oh, Peter!' she cried. "'You didn't tell me about her brain!' For a moment he felt a shock, thinking that somehow she had found out about the implant, but then he understood that Jane was under the impression that Barbara had suffered a degree of brain damage in the accident. How she had arrived at this conclusion he couldn't understand. "'Well,' he said, choosing his words carefully, "'there has been a degree of concussion, but they have assured me that she will be back to normal in no time at all.' Jane's response to this was to give a kind of choked sob, and then to rush out, leaving the front door ajar. He closed the door slowly, unable to understand this exaggerated reaction of their neighbour, but then dismissing it as the warm pleasure rose within him once more. Barbara was there in the dining room, sitting as he had left her, waiting for him, miraculously restored to him. He lifted the flowers from her lap and put them in water. Their life together now stretched once more into the future. The broken strand had been repaired, and they could go together into a future which had once seemed so black and forbidding, but which now glowed with the promise of their life to come. That night, when they had gone to bed, they made love. Feeling the smooth warmth of her bare body pressed against his, roused in him a tumult of sexual desire, and although he had intended to lead up gradually to a resumption of their physical relationship, he was overcome by what he felt, and began to caress her body feverishly, awash with a sense of physical excitement and blind love. Her sexual responses were different now, even through the storm of his own passion he was aware of that. She had been active, passionate, sometimes putting up a pretend resistance and fighting with the energy of a wild creature, but now she was passive and quiet. She caressed him clumsily while he was lost in the hills and the dales, the mountains and the caves of her body. But she responded to his tongue with hers, matched every caress, and when he entered her he had the sense of returning after a long and dangerous journey to a refuge which sustained and strengthened him. On a purely physical level he was aware of discomfort. The wet smoothness was no more, and he was conscious of a hard rubbing sensation but he could not control the mounting excitement of his body, and he moved in her as he had in the old days, shaking her body with his own, circling, thrusting, swinging in the movements of the ancient dance. Inside his body the fluids began to boil, rising, rising, and then suddenly spilling, scalding, and bursting as his movements became frantic. It was then with a profound sense of horror as Barbara beneath him began to roll her eyes and smile and leer in a totally false imitation of orgasm, something out of a schoolboy's dream or a pornographic booklet. He stopped abruptly, and his features set in a frozen mask of despair, looked down at her as she gazed at him with a simpering smile on her face. "'I've never had one of those before, big boy,' she said. "'That was the first one for me.' The next day she accompanied him quietly and passively as he took her to Faber's laboratory. She sat quietly with him on the bus, not even asking him where they were going, and he experienced an obscure feeling of treachery, as if he were taking a trusting animal to the vet to be put down. Faber was most concerned when he saw them both, guessing that there was some problem. In halting sentences he tried to explain what had happened, feeling that he was betraying her in some way. Faber apologized profusely and promised to sack the programmer responsible. 
It would be possible to prevent this from happening again, but only by opening up the brain and applying a strong current to a certain area. Of course, this would mean that there would be no response at all to certain stimuli, but nothing else could be done. It would be necessary to keep Barbara in the laboratory for two days. Goodbye, darling, she said as he left. Walking out of the building into the warm air, he decided that now would be a good time to pay a visit to the insurance office to sort out some details about the accident. The sun was shining, and the new leaves on the trees shone enormous luminous green, forming fluorescent patterns against the blue sky. He looked at the scene in an abstracted way as he walked, still feeling something of his recent withdrawal from reality, but at the same time he felt stirring in some innermost corner of his being a strange lightness of spirit, an irresponsible sense of gaiety. With every step he felt as though a crushing weight were being lifted from him, as though he were being cleansed by the sunlight, as though ancient dust was falling from his skin. The feeling was a curious one, especially after the recent events, but he did not analyse it too closely, satisfied merely with the withdrawn enjoyment he felt on this warm and bright day. A cherry tree was white with blossom as he turned down a side street, and it stood there like a bar of black metal with a white-hot tip. He stopped in his tracks and looked up at it for a long time, as though it were the first tree he had ever seen. The sky was a light but profound blue, and the blaze of the tree was etched against this background with an arresting intensity. As the air moved warmly with a slight breeze, so the blossom shifted, forming pattern after pattern, each blazing pattern significant and beautiful. The tree proclaimed its own existence like a shout. As individual blossoms caught the light, it seemed that sparks of whiteness moved in zigzag patterns through the branches, and he was reminded of the mysterious sparks of personality which zigzagged through the substance of the brain. Perhaps, he decided, he would walk through the park on his way to the insurance office. By the time he arrived two days later at Faber's laboratory, he had realised that he was going to leave Barbara here, and he would ask for the brain to be taken out and her body decently buried. He didn't understand the decision, but he knew that anything was preferable to the awful parody which had taken place in bed, to the dream in which he had been sinking. He felt sane, clear-headed, and more in control of himself than he had been since the accident. He felt only repulsion at the thought of the last few days, watching the traffic moving past in a slow and halting procession, the vans and lorries grazing great clouds of blue smoke in the air. He realised that he had arrived at a fragile kind of equilibrium, from somewhere he had drawn on a reserve of strength which was not great, but which would be sufficient to sustain him. But when he arrived at Faber's office, Barbara was there, sitting on the couch. There was a window behind her, and her fair hair shimmered with a nimbus of light almost like a halo. He had to remind himself that it was only a wig. As he entered the room, she was crossing her legs with a slithery sound. Wearing her blue suit, she looked beautiful and efficient, Unaware of his entrance, she looked also vulnerable. He felt his heart wrench as he looked at her. Did she have any inkling of what had been going through his mind? At that moment she turned and saw him, and she gave him a smile so radiant that not only did he instantly reverse his decision about leaving her, he wondered how he could have been such a fool as to even consider it. She stood, the open smile still on her face, and, allowing himself to sink into a well of infinite pleasure, he half ran across the room to her, taking her in his arms. Walking back home, her arm linked in his, they passed the cherry tree he had contemplated two days ago, 
and he paused for a while, watching it. Now the sky was overcast, and the blossom had a metallic appearance. He looked at the tree, and then at Barbara's face. How could he have considered such a thing? For a moment he was disturbed at the irrationality of the decision he had made then, but perhaps it was not to be wondered at. The emotions of the last weeks had been enough to imbalance the strongest mind. Darling, he said. Yes? Would you like to walk home? If you wish to. He took her arm again, and they began walking home. After that, he did not attempt to make love to her again. Instead, he instructed her in certain manual manipulations, and with time she gained a skill that made the act reasonably satisfying for him. Knowing that she felt nothing, he did not try to recapture what they had once had, but satisfied himself with a somewhat sterile compromise. In time, he found that he gained a perverse enjoyment from the act that he would not have expected. He would get her to undress him, and would lie there naked, while she, fully clothed, would bend over him, giving him voluptuous kisses. Thank God she could still kiss, while her hand worked, milking him of his desires. At first he would sometimes feel a sudden despair, and would clutch desperately at her body, and then subside, remembering what had happened before, knowing that even if he entered her, all she could offer was masturbation. In the end, these moments of passionate despair became less frequent, until they disappeared altogether. At times, as her fingers assuaged the physical needs of his body with her soft frictions, he was tempted to instruct her in a more intimate caress, but he would not, knowing that her absolute passivity and obedience was dangerous. He could see only too clearly that he would enjoy that power too well, and that such an act would inevitably lead to a perversion of their relationship, and so he contented himself, never asking more of her. Life settled down into a steady routine as the weeks moved on. The days lengthened, and spring merged into the early days of summer, and the air grew warm and heavy. Barbara proved herself to be capable in all spheres of life. She was able to run the house, and in terms of financial economy, she was even more efficient than she had been before. She could do the shopping with no trouble, although she seemed to have no discrimination between brands, and would pick up the nearest item to hand. Indeed, so efficient had she become that he tended to forget her limitations, as on the day he sent her to get some library books. She came back with the Barbara Cartland romance, the Music Lover's Dictionary of Recordings, the score of Iolanthe, and a book on surfing called The Crest of a Wave. Before the accident, they had known several people living in the area, although they hadn't made any close friends, but now everybody seemed to stay away. Even Jane Hailsham didn't call any more. He was puzzled by this, but did not particularly care. As long as he had Barbara, he didn't want anybody else. Of course, John Faber and his wife continued to call, and the Friday night bridge tradition was resumed. Indeed, the games became more enjoyable than they had before, because Barbara was a much more competent player than she had been, and together they could put up a much better showing against the couple. He started going out to work again, knowing that he could safely leave Barbara in the house. Travelling home on the train, he would feel a sense of exquisite pleasure among the crowded strangers at the thought that she was there at home waiting for him. He would enter the house to find her sitting quite still. When he had been detained at the office, she would be sitting there in the dark, and with his entrance, she would suddenly jerk and move, turning towards him with a welcoming smile, holding out her arms. 
He had become used to her lack of conversation and her literalness of mind. Now he found he began to enjoy these new characteristics. There were no rows now, no upsets in the placid progress of their relationship. Her coolness restored him when he had experienced a busy or trying day. Sometimes he would lie in bed as she lay beside him, and without disturbing her, he would turn his head and look at her, listen to her slow breathing, and feel completely happy, completely invulnerable, as though Providence had done its worst, and he had emerged unscathed. He stirred in the bed, hearing the rustle of the covers and the creak of a spring. Do you know, love, he mused, thinking out loud and feeling almost surprised at the sound of his own voice. I was really in a very strange state of mind in those days. Were you, darling? The voice is cool and measured and gives away nothing of what she is feeling. You were still a surprise to me, then? The changes in you, I mean. You should have known there would be changes. Yes, but they still had the power to surprise me. I didn't realize then that they were just another aspect of you that hadn't been revealed to me until then. I do not understand what you mean. Well, it's difficult to explain. I was sometimes disconcerted by what I took to be changes, and yet I was so confident about you in other respects. In which respects? Well, I felt curiously invulnerable. As though nothing more could go wrong. I can see now that the whole period was just a stage, but I thought it was a conclusion. Nothing else could happen. I just felt invulnerable, as though nothing could ever go wrong again. Don't you ever feel like that? I do not have feelings of that kind, no. I suppose not. And yet, in a way, you are more invulnerable than I can ever be. You've got to go to work in the morning, darling. You will really be very tired. Yes, you're right. I'll sleep in a little while. In a little while. Now he enjoyed doing the little household tasks more than ever. He even became something of a do-it-yourself expert, something he had never been before. He took pleasure in keeping the house immaculately clean and in good repair, perhaps as an outward expression of his state of mind. So one night, when they had gone to bed, he was obscurely irritated by the slight unpleasant odour he'd noticed in the bedroom. Perhaps there was mould growing underneath the plaster, or even something wrong with the pointing, allowing the damp to come in. He would have to have a look into that. But he found nothing, and the smell seemed to become stronger every night. He went so far as to move the bed from its accustomed position, but it was as though the smell followed them from one side of the room to the other. "'Where do you think it's coming from?' he asked her. "'I cannot detect any smell. No, of course not. I, I forgot.' Tracking down the source of the odour became something of an obsession, but this was not surprising because every night it was stronger and more offensive. Perhaps a mouse had died under the floorboards. The next night the stench was overpowering, and he realised he would have to take up the floorboards without delay. He settled down in the bed and covered his face with the blankets, trying to filter the air, but oddly this seemed to make the smell even worse. "'Good God!' he cried as the full force of the stench hit him. He lifted his head into the air again, the smell seemed to have diminished. Once more he lowered his nose and sniffed under the covers, then recoiled at the odour of rottenness. My God, he shouted, there's something in the bed! 
Quickly, he leaped out and began to strip off the covers, while Barbara lay in bed watching him. Do you mean there is something in the bed besides us? That's exactly what I mean. There must be a dead mouse in here. As he stripped off the covers, one by one, he had to smile to himself, despite the unpleasantness of the situation. It was somehow so typical of Barbara, making the bed without noticing a dead mouse. With all the covers off the bed, Barbara still laying there in her green nightdress, the first thing he saw was that there was no mouse. Then he saw what had been causing the smell, which now rose about him in sickening waves, saw it, but at first was incapable of understanding what it meant. He stared, feeling a great wave of nausea rising in him, a nausea which seemed to transcend the physical, as though he were about to vomit up his soul. The toes of Barbara's left foot were black and rotten. There were no nails, and the flesh looked like diseased meat. The sight was unbelievable, inhuman. He forced himself to look closer at the black and green mess that had been her toes. He felt a sense of horror so profound that he had to force himself not to scream like a woman. And he did make a sound then, a stifled cry which forced its way from his lips when he saw, moving whitely among the rotten flesh, a mass of maggots, giving the ruin of her toes a spurious kind of life, so that it looked almost as though she was doing the impossible and waggling them. He left the room, staggered to the lavatory, vomited, and went down the stairs, slipping and sliding down the last few steps painfully on his bottom. He telephoned Faber, barely able to say what was wrong. Faber said something. He, he, he didn't know what it was, but he understood that he would be coming straight round. Then he was upstairs again and stood trembling in the lavatory before being thoroughly and very painfully sick again. Afterwards, he sat on the stairs, waiting for the sound of Faber's arrival, not able to force himself to go back into the bedroom where presumably Barbara still lay on the bed, completely unconcerned. The front doorbell rang and he rushed to answer it, stubbing his bare toe painfully on the hat stand. Oh God, he said to Faber, hopping up and down in pain. It's, it's, it's horrible, terrible. All right, the man said. Calm down, where is she? He indicated that Barbara was upstairs and Faber went up. He remained standing at the door, holding his foot. Then, when the pain had abated, he followed slowly and sat at the top of the stairs once more. Faber came out of the room, a handkerchief pressed against his lips. I'm sorry, he said. I don't know why this has happened. It's advanced gangrene. She'll have to have an operation straight away. I'll get in touch with the hospital. I just don't know why it has happened. I'll get them now. I know I'm not medically qualified, but I know that they have to treat this as quickly as they can. Faber moved to the phone, and while he was dialing, he climbed the last few stairs and forced himself to enter the bedroom. The sweet, foul scent seemed to fill the whole room. Barbara was looking up at the ceiling, and she smiled as he came into the room. "'Hello, darling,' she said. "'You look worried. It's nice of John to come round and see us, isn't it?' He looked down at her face, her eyes large and luminous, her cheeks slightly drawn. Her lips curved in a quizzical smile, and he knew in that moment that were he to lose her now, he would surely die. She was rushed to hospital in an ambulance, and he travelled with her, remembering the first trip of this kind that they had made. She seemed to be unworried or, at any event, concealing her own feelings. She chatted away quite loquaciously. 
He tried to respond, not really hearing what she said, conscious only of the steel support which his hand clutched tightly, concentrating on pushing down the feelings of panic which threatened to overwhelm him completely. That night in the hospital, her left leg was amputated. No anaesthetic was necessary, and the surgeon found it a much easier and safer operation than normal. Indeed, ten minutes after her leg had been removed, she was lying in the hospital bed, looking radiant, assuring him that she was quite well. She had to stay in hospital for several weeks while the stump healed. The leg had been removed at the upper thigh, so an artificial limb was not possible. Attempts were made to get her to walk with a crutch, but for some reason the skill proved to be outside the range of her ability, and she was discharged in a wheelchair. It was a cold day when he came to take her from the hospital. He pushed her through the park, through the waves of fallen leaves, feeling an intense delight in her company, as though her presence reflected in some way on all the things of the natural world, making the colours of the trees glow all the brighter in their yellows, reds and browns, the grass a more profound shade of green, the dullish silver of the pond an even more dramatic contrast. Perhaps part of the visual sensitivity he had been experiencing recently was due to the fact that he had become very conscious of the passing of time. The days and weeks were moving on at a rate which sometimes frightened him. As they walked past the pond, they paused for a second and watched two small boys attempting to push their sailing boat out to the centre of the water. But the boat would insist on following a curving path and bumping its nose against the side of the pond. He looked down at Barbara's black hair the scar now completely hidden, the hair smooth and sleek once again. She was covered by blankets and looked small and vulnerable. He looked back at the boys standing at the edge of the pond, their bodies dark against the sheen of the water. He found himself trying to increase his powers of perception to catch every sparkle, every ripple in the water, the exact picture of the boys, one standing, his hands in his pockets, the other crouching, the boat half lifted from the water, the chill of the air, the rumble of traffic in the distance, and the song of a nearby bird, trying to fix the sensation of Barbara's presence so that this scene would somehow burn itself into his brain, halting the progress of this time which moved so fast that one could not grasp it. The boys evidently decided that they had spent long enough trying to launch their boat, and they lifted it from the water and started to walk off, not even noticing the couple who watched them. He turned the wheelchair and began moving in the opposite direction, moving slowly with her among the columns of the trees. He gave up his job, knowing that Barbara would no longer be able to look after herself, knowing that he would have to devote all his time to his crippled wife, Despite the loss of her leg, she now looked more beautiful than ever. The bruising around her face had healed long since, and the scar on her forehead had lost its vivid redness and was now a finely radiating star of lines. She would sit patiently in her wheelchair, never complaining, and sometimes he would wonder at the way she would put up with everything that had happened to her with an almost saintly acceptance. During this period, she had displayed a strength of character that he hadn't known she had possessed. As if, as a promise of good things to come, he received a cheque for a considerable sum from the insurance company, and with part of the money he bought a small second-hand car as a surprise for her. The following day he took her in the car out into the countryside, and he pushed her through the luminous interior of a deciduous forest, pointing out to her a grey squirrel which sat in the branches watching them as they passed. They moved slowly through the layers of crisp dead leaves, enjoying the freshness of the autumn air and as they walked, the branches vaulted over them like the roof of a cathedral. Fingers of sunlight parted the branches and touched the forest floor. He felt an extraordinary lightness of spirit, a sudden feeling that they would never be parted again.
I can hardly believe that I still have you, he said. I am here. You know that I love you, don't you? I know. They picnicked in a clearing in the forest, throwing scraps of bread for the birds, and he tucked the blanket more securely around her so that she shouldn't feel the cold. Orange clouds spread across the sky. From where they were, a clearing on top of a small hill, they could look away over the tops of the trees and see the sky spread out like a painter's canvas. The clouds were ridged, set out in stark perspective, diminishing in size as the eye moved back to rest eventually on the focal spot, the blaze of orange where the sun was hidden, curdling the sky. In the distance, blue hills blurred the distinction between sky and earth. He sat beside the wheelchair, and they were both silent, looking at the sky. He felt that he could sit thus forever, till the end of time, and feel no regret. He reached for her hand, taking it between his own. The hand was as cold as ice, unnaturally cold, with the coldness of death. He looked at it, then jumped to his feet. The hand was dead white, with greyish tint at the end of each finger, the hand of a marble statue. Once more he found himself sitting in hospital, his heart thumping, obsessive thoughts running through his brain. There was no way to save the hand, and eventually, two weeks later, her arm was amputated at the elbow. It's like some awful sick joke, he cried to Faber. I'm losing her piece by piece. What can I say? We just don't know what is happening. For some reason, this circulation is insufficient. I don't know why. We found quite a few anomalies in the biochemistry which we can't explain. In theory, the D3 brain should be able to cope very well with the hormone activity and so forth, but obviously there's some factor which has invalidated our calculations. But, but where is it going to end? For God's sake, this is my wife you're talking about. There are so many difficulties. With a normal patient, you get symptoms, and with Barbara, you don't. She could live through an infection that would kill anyone else, but she wouldn't even be aware of it. And her body doesn't run like anybody else's. The whole thing has become so complex. I'm sorry, but you must understand we're venturing into unknown territory here. Peter, how can I put it? Try not to expect too much. It began to seem as though his wife was melting before his eyes. A few weeks later, at one of the frequent medical checks which had now been instituted, gangrene of the toes of her remaining foot was diagnosed. The leg had to be amputated at the knee. At the same time, sugar began to appear in the urine, and with the appearance of ketone bodies, Barbara was put onto 56 units of insulin a day. An insulin reaction could not manifest as in normal diabetics, by confusion followed by unconsciousness. It only became apparent when spasms of the muscles indicated glucose starvation. Nursing her now was a full-time occupation. Her body was now almost seal-like. Naked, lying on her bed, waiting for her morning injection, she looked like some pathetic kind of sea creature, her one complete limb looking somehow out of place on her unnaturally streamlined body, but his love for her became more and more fierce. It seemed the less of her there was, the more he loved her, he tried to make Christmas a happy occasion. He bought a tree and decorated the house, and Barbara made one or two suggestions of her own about decorating, the more practical of which he adopted. Soon the lights were on all over the tree, which sparkled with a light, from a deep blue which darkened the needles, to a white which shimmered on the tinsel like frost. He bought her a necklace, and on Christmas Eve, in their darkened room lit only by the lights of the tree, which cast a warm radiance, he gave it to her, 
enjoying her pleasure as she undid the wrappers, put on loosely so that it was easy for her, and took out the necklace, sparkling in the light like fire. But despite his efforts, Christmas was overshadowed by the darkness of her illness. He was conscious of Faber's warning, and knew that having been miraculously restored to him, she could soon be lost forever. Her face had become thin, heightening her beauty as the perfect bone structure became more prominent. She now had a fragile delicacy of feature that melted his heart. He tried to live each second with her to the utmost, so that it would be engraved on his memory forever. He tried to invest each moment with an intensity that would brand it on the very substance of his brain, which would make every second of their remaining time seem like an hour. But time slipped by, and instead of existing with a kind of granite solidity, the individual moments slipped away like a shoal of slippery fish. Shortly after Christmas, lying in bed with her, he noticed a boil on her neck. Nothing too out of the ordinary, surely? After all, most people had a boil at some point or another. But, feeling a coldness in his stomach, he took off her nightdress and began to examine her mutilated body. He found other boils on her buttocks, on her back, in the shadow of her groin. The coldness spread over him, paralyzing him momentarily as something inside him told him that this was indeed the end. Numbly, wordlessly, he clasped her to him, feeling her eyelashes against his cheek, a warm, slow pulse beating in her throat. He heard himself crying her name. I can't lose you again. I can't. Oh, love, I can't live without you now. I know that. Holding her close, shivering, shuddering, he could not even contemplate life without her, and recoiled from the prospect helplessly. She couldn't die now. The fate that had delivered her from death into his arms could surely not be so blind, so stupidly cruel, as to deprive him of her once more. He knew that this time he would not even try to live without her. When she died, he would die too. There was no doubt about that. Without her, life would have no meaning, and to lose it would be nothing but a welcome release. He felt his diaphragm shuddering as he said, There, there. He realized that he was weeping, his body convulsed and seemingly beyond his control. He wept as he had not been able to weep the first time, and she patted his back with a hand, even in that moment, which felt unnaturally cold. "'You're in a bad way,' said Faber, patting his arm ineffectually as they both stared down at Barbara lying there in the hospital bed. "'Really, you ought to come into hospital too. You can't go on like this. Or better still, go away somewhere.' Try to forget. It's not me you should be concerned with. It's her. How can I forget? What do you mean? Barbara's body was now covered with angry, pustular swellings. Her left arm had become completely white and was to be amputated tomorrow. Her diabetes was out of control and for some reason she was not responding to the insulin that she was receiving in massive doses. She was pale and sweating freely, but her voice was cool and controlled as ever and she accepted her suffering with a stoicism which amazed him. "'I've told you,' said Faber solemnly. "'There's not a lot we can do. "'We don't even know how bad it is. "'We can't do anything until we find out what's causing her condition. "'There could be any number of causes. "'So far, the early tests have shown a marked deterioration of the tissues. "'A normal individual would have been unconscious by now, probably dead.' "'Oh, God, save her, save her!' He knew he was moaning like an animal, but couldn't stop. 
He knew that he was watching the end, but at the same time he could not accept it was so. He had to restrain himself from falling on his knees and begging favour to save her. He wanted to tear his hair, smash something, anything to stop the inexorable finish of his world. He went over to the bed and gathered her in his arms. She was wet and cool, sweating even more than she had before. Her body was light, like the body of a bird. He rested his forehead against hers. Barbara, don't leave me. Please don't leave me. He felt a tremor then, and for a moment thought that she was making some kind of response to his words. But as the tremor increased, he realized it was something else. His first thought was that it was an insulin reaction, but then realized it could not be that. Her body was loaded with glucose. He held her tightly, trying to restrain the spasms. No, don't, Barbara. Please, stop it. Her entire body quivered, and then suddenly her back arched and she became rigid in a fierce convulsion. Help! He called to Faber. Help! Quickly! Faber pressed the bell push for assistance, and the room was suddenly full of white-coated figures who clustered around the bed. Save her! Save her! He moaned. One of the doctors took his arms and pulled him away from her, occupying the space he had vacated. He found a small space and tried to squeeze between two figures. His face was running with sweat, more than pale, a stony whiteness. She was now lying limp and relaxed, but as he watched, another spasm seized her, and her body arched in the bed, her teeth gritted, her hand clenched. Seeing her thus, he knew there was no hope at all. Everything was over. He suddenly remembered the crash, how her body had lain across the bonnet of the car. Her skirt hitched up at the back, showing her thighs the way her blood had flowed down the gutter with the water from the burst radiator. The end had been delayed by a few brief months, but now, here, lying in this bed, it had come. Less dramatic, perhaps, but just as brutal. And with her gone, there could be no life for him. A sudden final surge of something akin to hope made him call out raspingly, urgently, Barbara, I love you! Don't die, Barbara! Don't leave me! At that moment her spasm ended, and her body dropped back to the mattress again, her blue eyes fixed on his, and from her ravaged face her voice came, incongruously cool. Peter, darling, I can't die. I am. And the voice trailed away into a whisper. The breathing stopped, said one of the doctors. They crowded round the bed, and he reeled away. He looked desperately around the little room, the fluorescent light pouring down mercilessly, harshly lighting the little drama that was being played out below. It's hopeless, said another voice. There's no way we can resuscitate her now. He looked back at the bed wildly, and at that moment her face lit up with a radiant smile, her eyes on him, so clear and so warm that he forgot the room, the doctors, the bed, Faber, everything but her. He held her with his eyes willing this moment to go on forever. But then the smile began to fade, the mouth straightening but not quite closing, the glint of her teeth still visible. And there was nothing more. Her body was as still as the bed. He felt numb. He knew that this lack of feeling was a prelude to the cataclysm still to come, but nevertheless he had control, and he marvelled at this. He turned to Faber, who was looking at him seriously with concern. What did she mean when she said she couldn't die? She's dead, isn't she? Come and sit down, old fellow. Don't forget, old chap, that it was the brain that was speaking. The D3 can't die. It's independent of her. All it requires to function is a battery, 
he allowed himself to be led across to a chair, and sat there unprotesting as one of the doctors slid a needle into his arm. He felt a warmth coursing through his body as the drug took effect, and his eyes became slightly unfocused as he observed the room through a haze, and then, from some obscure corner of his mind, something began to grow. An emotion that was totally improbable at this time. Like the drug, it spread, coursing through his chest, his bowels, his limbs. The little room with its cold, cruel light seemed to fade a little, to remove itself a few feet away from him. He felt a sensation that could not be described. It was not hope. It was not joy. But it was a kind of mixture of the two emotions, and it boiled in his breast so that he could scarcely breathe. Of course, he heard himself saying. Of course. What is it? What's the matter? Faber came rushing to his side. What's wrong? Wrong? Perhaps nothing. <laughs> Perhaps nothing at all. As he lay in bed, enjoying the warmth, he felt himself smiling at the memory of it all. The tumultuous emotions of that night had gone to be replaced by a quiet feeling of contentment which had never left him. He chuckled. What is it, darling? Barbara said. Oh, nothing. I was just thinking back. You know, that last time in the hospital. Oh, if you hadn't said anything, I would have lost you. If I hadn't said what? You know, about not being able to die. Oh. He turned his head on the pillow and looked at her. She stood on top of the bedside cabinet. A glint of pale light invading the room through a chink in the dawn curtains shone on the golden plates that curved around her. A wire led to her vocalizer and her loudspeaker unit from which her voice emerged, mechanical now, but still undoubtedly her. A green light on her vocalizer lit up the pillow with a ghostly light. He felt a sense of unutterable contentment. Isn't it about time you went to sleep now? she asked him solicitously. Otherwise you'll feel tired tomorrow. Yes, you're right. But he enjoyed a few seconds of silence with his eyes still open, still looking at her as she stood there silently gleaming. They were together. After all this, they were together, and they would remain together. As long as life remained for him, they would remain bound indissolubly, untouched by the winds of the world, the howling gales of time, and now he knew that he could not lose her again, that he could give himself to her completely sinking himself into her so that they were as one person, without reservation, without fear, even without thought. Barbara, he whispered. What is it? I love you. Good night. Good night. <laughs> There you go. Not many science fiction podcasts can claim to have one of those stories from The Last Dangerous Visions. A mythical book that has never come into being. I am so proud. So I'd like to thank Langdon Jones. I'd like to thank Hal Nelson because I spoke to him on the telephone regarding it and he gave us permission as well. And Neil Corbett. Fantastic. Thank you so much, everyone. Don't forget, copyright is Langdon Jones. And if you try and get this one, you'll have Harlan to answer to, so be warned. Next up, we've got a little book promo for Amy H. Sturgis. Amy, you have a book out.
Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. This is Amy H. Sturgis, and I wanted to let you know about a new project of mine that's just hit bookshelves. You may recall that way back on Arl Delight Show number 28, in my segment on the history of the genre, I discussed the speculative fiction of Baron de Lamont Fouquet, most notably his masterpiece, The Magic Ring. In 2006, I had the privilege of editing a scholarly paperback edition of this great work, the first English edition in well over a century. Now, in 2010, I've teamed up once again as editor with Valancourt Books to present a collectible edition for readers, this time in hardcover, with over 40 new illustrations by award-winning fantasy artist Jeff Murray. I'm thrilled with this beautiful edition of a work that I find to be amazing. Fortunately, I'm not the only one. SFSite.com has said, The Magic Ring remains a very readable and entertaining novel, with numerous twists and turns, mysteries, and secrets revealed. This is why it deserves a reading after over a century in obscurity. And Midwest Book Review has written that it's, quote, a work of fantasy that has truly endured the test of time, a must-have for readers of classic fantasy. I would invite you to discover Fouquet's remarkable story and Jeff Murray's spellbinding artwork for yourself. For more information, please visit Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, ValancourtBooks.com, or my own website, AmyHSturgis.com. Thank you for your time. And now, back to your regularly scheduled Starship Sofa. I'll put a link on the Amy's site. Please go over there and check out her book. Next up is Fact Article by our good friend Rod Barnett. Rod. Hello, everybody. Although the film Splice got a fair amount of publicity this year before its release, the science fiction film tanked at the box office so hard it may have left a hole in theater screens. The phrase, they stayed away in droves, could have easily been applied to the performance of this latest attempt to entice audiences away from whatever television remake was playing in the theater next door. But in a summer where the best that most people can say about the movies being offered by Hollywood's meat grinder system is... It didn't suck too much. It may have been asking more than was possible to get folks to go see something that was clearly just a new riff on the old Frankenstein story. I mean, hey, aren't there about a dozen of those things squirming their way across the Sci-Fi Channel's weekend programming schedule all the time? And with names like Cyclops and Hydra or Igor spelled with the word I or Mansquito or whatever... Why would anybody want to go out and pay to see that? God, I hate the Sci-Fi Channel. And not just because they thought that they were being smart by changing the spelling of the classic name chosen to label their broadcast, but because they are making it hard for intelligent science fiction to even get noticed anymore. Don't get me wrong, it's never been easy for smart science fiction to make money at the box office. Just ask your friends how many of them saw Gattaca in the theaters back in 1997. Ah, well, pearls before swine, I guess. Not that Splice is an easy film for a mass audience to like. It works hard to unnerve people with a fairly misogynistic angle to the story and a willingness to press hardwired puritanical buttons that some people don't seem to realize are still lurking in their psyches. 
I've been enjoying watching women try to figure out why they are responding so negatively to the film when they can manage to examine the ideas the movie tosses around anyway. Some of them just seem so creeped out by the tone that they don't want to talk about it at all and just want to call it a terrible, 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 terrible film. Well, I'm here to tell you that Splice is anything but a terrible film. As a matter of fact, it's one of the smartest science fiction films I've seen in a long time. And the fact that it likes to play around inside your head and mess with a few buttons that don't necessarily need to be pushed is a plus in my book. Let me run down the plot for you real quick. Adrian Brody and Sarah Polly play two kind of superstar genetic engineers named Clive and Elsa. And uh, they're pretty famous in their field because they have been able to successfully splice together the DNA of different animals to create new hybrid animals, such as uh, kind of worm creatures that exude or excrete pharmaceutical chemicals that the company that they work for used to make wonder drugs. They've been kicking around the idea of using human DNA for a long while, but that's illegal. Definitely outside the bounds of what is allowed, but they're still thinking about it. At least Elsa's thinking about it really, really hard. Clive is a little on the leery side, but he's not too resistant when Elsa pushes the idea a little harder than normal and they start playing around in secret with human DNA. The crossing of this ethical boundary taints everything that comes afterwards dealing with these two characters. They know they've made a giant error, and every time they have a chance to self-correct, something intervenes. Unfortunately, the thing that usually intervenes is Elsa wanting to just push it a little bit further. One of the most interesting things about Splice is that her reasons for wanting to keep this experiment going, even after they have what is obviously in front of them a part human, part something else, hybrid creature that could be incredibly dangerous to them in a lot of different ways, are things buried in her past and her childhood and her very ideas of what it means to have a child and to be a parent that inevitably twist every action she takes. And sadly, Clive is more than willing to be the Adam to her Eve and just go along and do what she says. One of the reasons I think Splice works as well as it does is it feels a lot like early David Cronenberg films, things like Videodrome and The Brood most especially, films that had it at their center a very disturbing idea about what it means to be human and what it is that we can create in ourselves and outside of ourselves that may or may not be as human as we are and what that reflects back on us. The film is very smart in how it plays with various themes and very subtle in how it points to certain ideas. One of my favorite things that the film does very effectively is it uses names to point the clued-in viewer to certain things. I've mentioned that the two main characters are named Clive and Elsa. That's a direct reference to Frankenstein, the original Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, movies that is, because Colin Clive is the man who played Dr. Frankenstein in both films, and Elsa Lanchester is the actress who played the bride. This playing with names goes on throughout the film, and it's really clever. 
there's a sequence in which they're trying to decide what to call their little creation. Elsa decides to call her Drin, which is the word nerd spelled backwards. Now, of course, within the context of the story, nerd is an acronym that stands for the portion of the company for which they work. And so it folds itself out of the story, but it's a knowing wink that she gets a laugh out of and that the movie obviously points to as yet another little tell about paying attention to what we're calling things. Adding to the overall effectiveness of the film are some fantastic special effects and creature design. They're very, very good for a film that did not have a huge budget. From what I understand, the total budget was uh, about $26 million. The film also has some fantastic performances. It's anchored by some very understated performances from both Adrian Brody and Sarah Polly. Neither character they play is what you would call heroic, but they have so many wonderful moments that generate some sympathy and tenderness for both of them to keep you from hating them when their behavior gets darker and darker as the film goes on. Splice is as much of a cautionary tale about people having kids before they're ready or before they even really know what they're doing, as it is a, a kind of tale of scientists playing God, a cautionary tale about more than just poor parental skills and bad ideas taken to an extreme. The film also has plenty of hot-button political issues that it tags really heavily, not the least of which, as I've already mentioned, are some of the misogynistic tones and the Adam and Eve storyline aspect of it layered over everything else. But I guarantee you, if you see this film, you will at the very least be debating ideas that this film tosses around long after the credits have rolled. So, I personally recommend Splice. It's a lot more cerebral than you'd think. It's a really sharp film, but it's not your big summer blockbuster with big explosions and simple-minded ideas. It's complex, it's dark, it's a little nasty, and it may just turn some of you off by virtue of what it does and how it does it. But hey, in my opinion, some of the best science fiction in the world is that kind of thing. I love those types of stories, and to be honest, I thought that the days were long past when I would see this type of story done this well on a movie screen in the summer. I'll talk to you next time, folks. Have fun, and go out and see some movies. There you go, Rod. Thank you so much. So, that is Aura Delight, show 146. Hope you've enjoyed it. A little bit of a remarkable scoop for Starship Sofa. You know, that, like I say, I remember Kieran mentioning the last Dangerous Visions, and, you know, talking about Dangerous Visions and, you know, the second volume, and then this kind of mythical third one that never came about. To have one of them stories on there is just amazing. Don't forget, if you want Starship Sofa's The Captain's Logs, Beach Read 305. You've got until the 15th of August to get 15% off. Beach Read 305. Pop over to Starship Sofa or just go over to Lulu and type in Starship Sofa. There you go. That's it. I'm out of here. I'd just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. 